Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I don't remember how to do this. Welcome to Be Good and Rewatch It, a Waypoint podcast where we take a close look at movies and television and examine their themes, craft, and relationship to our times. And what times these are. Uh, You may have noticed that Gita's been absent from the podcast the last few episodes. Well, she came down with COVID-19 and much to all of our relief, uh, seems to have gotten a fairly manageable case and it sounds like she's going to be back next week. Uh, But we've all been stuck in varying degrees of isolation attempting to do our part to prevent the further spread of a disease that has killed thousands and devastated both the global and local economies of our respective communities. It's a frankly frightening and uncertain time, and our thoughts are, as always, with those suffering and laboring amidst this crisis. A curious feature of this crisis, however, is that it's proven to be a weirdly prime opportunity to catch up on TV and movies. We're all stuck at home, um... I get out once a day to walk the dog at around four in the morning. Uh, and it is a surreal and bizarre experience every day. Uh, and lately there's been one movie that I think a number of us at various points have been very keen to discuss. Autumn DeWilde's new adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma, starring Anya Taylor-Joy, who was the lead in two of the Shyamalan films we discussed during the Be Good and Rewatch It era. Uh, split and glass. Oh my god! Yeah, no, she's uh-huh. yeah. This is <laughs> this is the through line. Yeah. Oh my god, she, we have a through line. <laughs> we do. We have we, a couple now. We have a we couple. Have a couple but yeah. One of them is Anya Taylor Joy. The other is Jane Austen. The other is today, the day that we are recording this, uh, uh, April second, twenty twenty. Uh, because last year, three hundred and sixty-five days ago to the day, is the day that we released our. Uh, be good and rewatch it about the 1997, 1996 Emma BBC series. Stop uh, it. Rob and I recorded that and released that 365 days ago. Not it was really 2006. Be- it was 2006. What did I say? 1996? Completely yeah. wrong. Completely wrong. <laughs> 2006. Apologies. So damn, Johnny Lee Miller is aging like a king. Like good a Lord. fine line. <laughs> um, that version, just one more time before we get into anything else, just say that version rules. Uh, <laughs> People should watch that version also if they're interested in Emma. And go I back and listen. Sworn that podcast was three years ago at this point. No, it was a year ago. It was exactly three hundred and sixty-five days. Year. Yes. What has this if last for the year le- been? Good, a lot. Who what has this last say? week been like? <laughs> yeah. uh, so I'm your host Rob Zachney, and for our escape to a particularly isolated corner of 19th century England, uh, you've already heard her. We are joined by our special guest, Natalie Watson. Hi, hi. Happy to be here. 
<laughs> oh, it's so good to have you back. It's so good to be putting back together the uh, the Jane Austen crew. Uh, <laughs> and of course, we also have Austin Walker. How's it going? I mean, it's good. Yeah. We already did a bunch of material. We did a bunch of, we talked already about how it's going. I think it ended with you talking about, but you know what? People will have to listen to the after show to hear what we were talking <laughs> yeah. about. Wait, no, hold on. This came huh? out. Sorry, BBC the the Be Good and Rewatch It on BBC's Emma came out yeah. April third. So wait, released- three, yes, yes, three hundred and sixty five days ago because it's a leap year. <sighs> yeah, I did this Fuck. math, Kato. Wow. Damn, math. big brain over uh-huh. here. Yeah, but it will still be releasing on the same date too. So amazing. That's oh kind wow, of, amazing! I, like- I thought it was Monday. No, I thought this was going up today. today. No, I thought today up- was Monday. <laughs> it's Thursday. <laughs> I've lost track. I just because I'm working every day. I'm just doing different work every day now. Right. That and now yeah. that I'm not going into an office. The sketch my week is just blah. the only thing holding me together is on Sundays you get turn ups from <laughs> in Animal Crossing. That's the only thing at this point keeping yeah. my life in order. So, uh oh! Thank God for those pastoral rituals. Yeah, uh, and of course we also have uh, heard him there a moment ago. Our producer Kato. Hi. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> let's get into this movie. Uh, but before we do that, let's talk about how we watched it, because this is a movie that was released in the before time. And then it was rushed to digital rental <laughs> as theaters closed, as this virus got further out of control. So I'm curious, what all was the context and setting of your first viewing of this, of this movie? Natalie and I saw it together, which was fun. That was really fun. We saw it opening day. We saw it opening day at the... Where was Alamo. it? It was at the Alamo, yeah, which meant... Yeah, we missed the first showing because Austin was late. I was late. And wow. uh, we... It was I fine. I left my we wallet or something. I did something yeah. really stupid. I don't remember what it was, but I had to, like, turn around. I, I, yeah, it was not It was. It, I was totally fine with him being late, for the record. Thank you. I don't... I, you it. could be late anytime. We got dinner it's instead. Fine. It was nice. Yes, it was very nice. Uh, Then we had to ask someone to move their seat so we could sit next to each other in Austin, and they were and they were nice about it, and they let us do it. But then I ended up in a broken chair, and I was mad. Damn! (laughs) But then we watched Um, the movie, and that was a good way to watch the movie. Yeah, it was good in theaters with an audience that was really there for it. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. How did it look like? This is a visually sumptuous. Film yes. in a lot of ways. Like, how did it look on the big screen? This is, I saw this and I was immediately kicking myself that I hadn't rushed out opening week. Um, yeah, I think that it, I, like, especially for a place like the Alamo, which prides itself on its screens and stuff, it was, mm-hmm. it was gorgeous. I think a lot of the color was fantastic. Um, and I think there's lots of, there's lots of cinematography in this film that takes advantage of the, there, there are moments, especially I think when people are moving through the village. Um, where it wants to give you a slightly broader feeling than what I'm used to from these historical dramas, which tend to be really, even when they're showing you the estate or something, you know, that's that's the exception. But in general, it tends to feel very cramped for me, mm-hmm. um, uh, and especially in like the township, in the area where where regular folks are living. I don't tend to have a good feeling feeling for like the layout of what is happening. But the sequences in this movie of um, and not to get ahead of it, but like them shopping in in the um, in the boutique and like watching the the girls from the school walk you know down the pathways, all of that stuff gave me such a great sense of openness. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I have to imagine that was enhanced by seeing it in theaters. Yeah, I definitely felt like 
I had a better sense of like locale and how things were placed and how people were moving in between different places than I have in past ad- like Austin adaptations or even just like these types of period pieces where there's like the estates and then the township um, where I like I just have a hard time imagining where everything is happening but I don't know if it was attributed to the fact that we saw it in the theater but there was just it, it there felt I felt like I n- knew where I was at any given point which um I'm not really in relationship to everything else mm-hmm. um which felt specific to this experience it, they also framed each of the scenes in town with folk music true like you knew you were yeah, moving it's... into a more like the more rural areas of town and stuff all the time when you would hear that song come in, even if you were still in the scene before you knew we're moving out of the estate mm-hmm. and into, you know, amongst the, amongst the common folk as it were. Um, yeah, I, that we have to talk about the soundtrack at some point. That's all. I'll yeah. Say. That's we'll get mm-hmm. there. Uh, Kata, did you also catch it in the theaters or yes. did you wait to rent it like me? No, no, we, um, so, uh, my wife, Christina really loves Jane Austen adaptations. So I've seen the, uh, what did she think of our podcast? Did she like it? Oh my god! <laughs> What'd she say about me? She doesn't like <laughs> the BBC Pride and Prejudice, so she didn't okay. listen oh, to the podcast. Okay, I'm sorry. So you guys like serious? <laughs> oh my god! Jesus Christ! Um, <laughs> we're gonna I'm we're gonna go through and watch all the BBC stuff now, just because we have fucking time, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, but other adaptations of, of Jane Austen, the movies, she also especially loves Clueless, actually. But um, it came out uh, six days before her birthday this year. So, like, that was what we did for her birthday. Um, oh, so fun. we went out that That's weekend. Nice. We went to the Alamo as well uh, because, um, you know, they're in, in this area, it's, like, one of the best projects. Like, I really love their projections. So it's never done me done me wrong where i went to another theater once and it was like wow this ticket isn't any cheaper but the 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 projector sure sucks for some reason it's really unfortunate (laughs) um but so um yeah it was it was really great and like you know they they nailed yeah there's something about the color in this movie that feels heightened even for this sort of film like sometimes it can feel like period pieces will um, use these palettes, but subdue them in order to make things feel old in a way. Um, yeah. Unless you're going for it in the way that, like, Mary Antoinette, for example, kind of like, leaned say. into it, right? Yeah, but, like, and that's... make it, like, a very intentional, like, saturated thing. And, right. like, this is, yeah. I feel like this felt more naturalistic saturation, though, right? Like, where it's like, this is what it would have looked like at the time. Like, they're not overly saturated. It's saturated to, like, these are new things. This is not mm-hmm. an old place. Yes. Like, right, these right, are right. The, yes. the, the kind of... Because there's this... this... No, go ahead. No, I was just, just going to say, like, there was this brief moment in, like, period pieces where I think there was almost this, like, overcorrection to try to mm-hmm. make things look... Um, I don't know. It was like this weird period piece grittiness aesthetic that came in where mm-hmm. it was like, oh, no, if they're making a medieval movie, it has to be like dingy and shitty and horrible because like <laughs> that's how it really was. Right. Oh, if you're making a piece set in like, uh, you know, Regency England, uh, everything should be kind of faded and frumpy and everything. It's like, no, that's what preserved items from that period look like today. Right. Like yeah. in a in a museum. But that's probably not what they looked like 
when they were sitting in a shop window mm-hmm. in 1820. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of the credit has to go to like everything about this production is so good. Uh, I think the costume design uh, from mm-hmm. Alexander Byrne is really incredible. And so much about these characters is expressed oh, yeah through how they dress. And this is a movie that's interested in the choices they make and the considerations they, they take as they decide what to wear and what they want their aesthetic to be. Uh, I also think the art direction by Alice Sutton and the sets uh, by Stella Fox are equally vivid and tie to the characterization in a way that is, fairly unusual in an Austin adaptation. Like we can see Pemberley and say, ah, that's a reflection of Darcy in the BBC one, but really that's just a place they found. Right. Mm -hmm. And like that is told through a character explicitly saying Darcy is such and such a kind of guy. And here's some beautiful music while we go through this old English show home. But in this production of Emma, the places people inhabit and the way they're designed and decorated tells us something about each one of them. Uh, in a way that I find really unusual for adaptations we've seen. What what stands out for you? Like what is what is what is your call out one there? If one well, I mind. think certainly the most forward one is Emma's home. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is clearly a place where she, you know, she even says at one point that she doesn't really want for any of the independence that a lot of women get married for because she already has it. Uh, mm-hmm. at the at uh, the Hartfield estate. And so she has clearly leaned heavily into uh, a more Louis the 14th type look uh, for her for her home, right? Uh, it, you know, it's all it's all painted walls and accent pieces and uh, it is in sharp contrast to say Knightley's kind of mm-hmm. faded uh, like, Italianate uh, elegance in some ways is, is right. like what Dunwell Abbey communicates. I wonder how much that changes some of the emotional resonance of the kind of decision at the end of the film that he will move and spend time with her there instead of her doing what is the kind of traditional thing and leaving her father's home and moving in with him. I guess we should say right now, we are spoiling this movie. Because <laughs> I just did. Whoops. It's be good and rewatch it. Yeah. It is be good we and spoil. rewatch it. That is what this is. It's what we're discussing. We're discussing the whole film. That'll be the whole thing. Um, because I, and I'd have to go back and watch the, 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 um, the version from 2006, 2008, whatever it was. Um, uh, but I remember that that feeling a, a lot more um, tenuous somehow. That like that decision felt, and and maybe that is about. I think specifically what it's about is in that version that felt like her father's house. This feels like Emma's house, and you're right. Mm-hmm. I think so much of that comes back to the set dressing, and, and on top of I think just the way that they handle her father in this leans mm-hmm. a lot more comical and a lot more like. You know, goofy old man, uh, certainly still a, a hypochondriac, certainly still very controlling and sad and very like feels like he will be left to die alone, even if there is nothing but uh, evidence of the contrary, mm-hmm. uh, surrounded by people who want to spend time with him. And yet, um, but here it doesn't feel like such a terrible thing 
uh, or, or like such a like it would be a question at all that of course Knightley can move here for the the foreseeable future. It's fine, you know. It's like an eccentricity that everyone accepts, and oh. there's like the way that everybody comes to Knightley's uh, Bill Knight. Uh, the father, I forget. Bill Nighy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bill uh, his defense, like whenever some, like nobody ever criticizes him for it or like, it, it is everyone always kind of Happy accommodate. to move things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Happy, yeah to happy to move things around. Happy to dip from fucking dinner and just go the fuck home <laughs> because fuck. it's about a snow. We gotta go. Goodbye. We gotta go right now. <laughs> it's just like it's such an incredible exit. If I ever need to leave anywhere, I'm just gonna, it's gonna snow. I gotta, I need to leave. <laughs> I gotta now. get out of here. Um, uh. but yeah, it's like, it's like a very sort of, uh, you can tell that he's, revered and like loved and it's not even necessarily despite this thing it is just like an acceptance of the whole his whole personality (laughs) so i want to say like (laughs) (laughs) i think it's actually one of the so i think this is one of my favorite aspects of the 2006 adaptation because i think that one very smartly does identify there's an element of unhealthy codependence yes. and yes. mental illness in uh, the relationship that Emma and her father have. And the 2006 version is very interested in that. It's also got much more room to explore it without it sort of uh, dominating the entire story, which I think is why they went that direction. Mm-hmm. This version, I do like it, but it also, also does feel very much like, and it's the one really false note for me in this production maybe, is... Um, this is very much a movie uh, that is aware that Bill Nighy has become one of those guys, yeah. right? He's almost mm-hmm. like a Stephen Root character where it's yeah. like, hey, it's it's Bill Nighy. Here he is. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's hopping down the stairs. Yeah. yeah, he literally jumps down the stairs. Yes. Which, which I, yeah, which completely removes the sort of physicality of his psychological ailment, if that makes sense, right? right. Yeah. That, that it really leans into he's playing – he's really playing a role. It's not that he has been consumed by these feelings and and by his yeah. kind of emotional state, which is – again, it's been a while since I watched the 2006 version. But in my memory, that is so much more how that felt. Yeah, it's very much like a famous stage actor arriving in a live production, right, and pausing to let the audience applaud and cheer. <laughs> yes. That's how Bill Nighy enters uh-huh. this film. And it's not how he plays it throughout. But the opening yeah. of this film is very much like, yeah, it's Bill Nighy yeah. as Emma's dad. It's, Isn't this great? It's Gus yeah. Asparagus, the, the theater cat from Cats, except in Emma. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Uh, but let's let's turn to the opening of this movie because I think the movie opens – reveals sort of one of its major subtexts right at the start. Uh, we, we open on the on the text informing us that Emma Woodhouse has lived 21 years with very little to distress or vex her. And then we get a shot of her snapping awake in a darkened bedroom followed by a quick sequence of her getting ready for her day and then walking across the beautiful grounds of her estate – being guided by the light of a lantern. But she's not carrying the lantern. It's attached to a pole being carried by a footman who is following a few steps behind her. And then she goes into her greenhouse and painstakingly selects the exact blossoms she wants cut. But she's not going to cut them herself. She's indicating to her maid, who's also been following about a foot behind her, 
uh, which which ones to cut. When the maid almost gets it wrong, I was very quick to say, no, 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 not that one, <laughs> this one. Uh, and so our first encounter with Emma and our first images of this world are of this division between labor and aristocracy. And this is a theme that recurs through a lot of this picture. Uh, so I kind of wanted to start the discussion here because for much of the rest of this film, we're going to be into issues of plot and characterization. But the film chooses to open this way. And I'm curious, do you think DeWilde's Emma is really interested in class or is it interested in how class throws its subjects into sharper relief, right? Is class just a way, a, a filter it puts on to let us see Emma a little more clearly, to let us mm. see her father see a little more, to let us see her father a little more clearly? I think it's likely the latter. I didn't leave this feeling like this had been, and I think we've we've gone down this road before with, with Austin adaptations, right? Um, but I, I don't know that this felt to me like there was a takeaway around class, it, unless it was uh, a sort of instructional, if you are of means, this mm -hmm. is how you treat those without, with respect and dignity, <laughs> which is not necessarily a particularly useful um, pedagogy, because the lessons are not about class relations. They're not really, they're, they're about... They're about recognizing your your privilege in a way in which you don't lord it over people because it will upset them, which mm -hmm. is not really the lesson that I think – it's not really a lesson much at all uh, in, in terms of what class is or what, what those class relations are. Um, you know, it's, it's a message about uh, civility and recognizing one's standing more than anything. And I don't I – don't, I think it pulls them into relief. I think it pulls them into relief and, it, and I mostly think it does so for – comedic value more than anything uh -huh. else. I think, I mean, in general, this film is extremely funny. I think this film, like, again, uh, in contrast to the 2006 version, just had me, like, laughing nonstop. I was, yeah. I was the annoying person totally. in the theater <laughs> laughing very loudly at things um, that uh, no one else seemed to find that funny, unfortunately. Um, uh, and I think there's, it's the, like, absurdity of the thing, right? Like, oh, my God, this fucking... This like rich little twerp who has a footman and a maid, I can't believe her. It's that right? Um, yeah. One of I, the I thing. Came... Go, Go ahead. ahead. Uh, I was gonna say one of the things that I really enjoyed too uh, about um, the kind of portrayal of the servants in this movie is that so often um, it it kind of leans into that that thing I was talking about the the way that they've kind of done the set dressing as well. It feels very naturalistic, where like they're making mistakes. And doing things and moving in a human way, where a lot of times in period pieces, the the like the like may if it's not about the servants, they they kind of become this backdrop of like look at their wealth and they always like do everything kind of perfectly. But so many times you see servants kind of like being very human, even even though they are still backdressing in this in this movie. But um, there's lots of really like like you were speaking to at the very beginning, the kind of almost mistake that she makes the that the maid makes on cutting the flowers there's moments where they're like the two yeah they play it a lot for laughs with uh, the father and like the two uh butlers kind of moving the screens around and things like that but in a way that i feel like um is maybe attempting to bring a little bit more clarity into kind of how these like it's obvious that they're kind of fed up with this ridiculousness a little bit um but they can't really be more uh, forward about it other than giving a few 
glances because of their what their station is right like there are these glances that they share between each other like they like roll their eyes at the father sometimes but like that's that's as much as there is um i don't know like there's something also kind of interesting about the scene when knightley is being dressed i feel Mm, like there there's a weird almost like there's like an awkwardness there where like Oftentimes, I feel like people being dressed in movies gets played as very, like, elegant and, like, mm-hmm. sensual sometimes. Uh-huh. But something about that felt like this is an intimacy that Knightley is not ready to share with people, but he's sharing it with this butler as he's, like, putting on his stock. Like, I don't know. It's kind of like a weird, it's like a different view of that scene, I feel like, than uh, a lot of period dramas. It's, like, very lived in. Uh-huh. In a way that uh-huh. uh, I think feels less like a set piece or a stage or like, you know, means by which to like a- progress the scene or whatever, where they're just like doing the tasks as if there's a telepathy between um them and like the head of the house or whatever and there's like an actual exchange Mm -hmm. happening here that um is like fraught sometimes and i think the main thing is it it points out like a ridiculousness that i think Mm -hmm. you're right austin we're meant to laugh at um and it's played it's played especially for laughs um but i think the sort of redeeming quality to it is that like we can just tell from the outset that there's like uh emma's character is is a complete brat and is like oblivious (laughs) and is like a little shit and we're and we're like already laughing at it so we're already kind of looking at her as unaware and like self-obsessed in a way that we can I don't know we're not really sympathizing we're not really putting ourselves whereas in a lot of period pieces I think we're supposed to like be enamored with this like upper class way of living and especially in like uh uh Pride and Prejudice like I think we the only thing on screen for us to really look at is like this this upper middle class plus upper class characters and here we actually get the time to kind of as an audience member i felt more like i was one of the viewing it from a perspective Mm -hmm. of like maybe the the uh household or of like the common folk than anything else i think that's totally fair it's almost as if the line to draw here is like this is not necessarily a film about class but it is certainly a class conscious film or a class mm-hmm. conscious mm-hmm. adaptation of the material in the sense that what it could make invisible it draws attention to now it doesn't those things don't cohere to to a, into a thesis about the class relations of the time yeah. Right. Um, yeah. um obviously just to be 100% clear like i i, I want to be clear that i'm not forgetting about the entire plot around (laughs) the farmer. Like, all that stuff is there, but I don't think that it ends up, you know, the sort of, like, go with the person who loves you. Uh, Hey, times are changing, and what class means is changing. Like, all that stuff is core to what Emma is, but thinking about it as a a fundamental adaptation of this other work, I don't know that it ever coheres into, like, a radical text, but it is, you're totally right, I think, 
class conscious in, in in terms of what it's making visible on the screen versus what other adaptations uh, or, or even imagined adaptations could have made completely transparent, um, uh, and, and especially other things in this in you know other hist- uh, historical dramas and, and historical comedies in this mode have traditionally or often done in some cases. You know, mm-hmm. I think by the standards of Austin. Uh, adaptations like i think telling a story like this and at least getting the viewer to empathize with somebody outside the sphere of the main characters like mm-hmm. considering the servant's perspective is not a bad place to end up with an adaptation totally like but that, like, that part th- is always with emma though right like emma is already the one in which you immediately go like this fucking bitch like i can't believe <laughs> what well, yeah, but, done no, no, but to I also- smith and and then and then the whole film is the slow build until until the badly done stuff, right? Um, no, but I, I I mean in a much more like a smaller scale version of this, which mm. is just we do not take for granted that these uh, servants are part of the scenery in a way a right. lot of productions do, mm. right? Like we consider – we are forced to consider the sheer awkwardness yeah. of being witness to some of this shit uh, <laughs> that like, you know, there is a moment where uh, – Emma and Knightley start to get into an argument. Uh, and the minute it begins to cross a certain threshold, the servants without like, just sort of like quickly look at each other, drop what they are doing, which is literally polishing silver. They just put everything down mm-hmm. and get the hell out of the dining room because they <laughs> yeah. do not want to be around uh, for whatever is about to happen. There's a few scenes where, where servants rapidly try to figure out like, how do I, how do I get out of this? Cause like, I don't want to, like, I should not be here. I don't want to be a part of this moment. Uh, and yet nobody seems to acknowledge that I'm still here. So I need to get out of this. And I think that already distinguishes this treatment of it yeah. from a lot of what other adaptations have done. It's distinguished. I'm just, I'm just wary of falling into the trap of, of um, giving it kind of praise for, Praise oh, that, that veers on making it sound like it's radical. Um, oh, I, yeah. No, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah we, we I, said, we're basically saying the help is on screen, but like, yeah. they don't have and lines. They don't have and, names. Yeah, there, no. you know, there's a version but of you this. Can tell, but you can tell that like, they think this is weird and totally, wacky. And that's, that's subversive. Something. Yeah. yeah. It is sub- I'm, but it's not much. But it's I not don't much. know that it's subversive in 2020. I, like, I don't, I, agree. I think that it's necessary to tell this story because I think audiences would, I think that with the rest of what this story is set up and, 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 and maybe even like the, to some degree, I feel like those decisions feel like Autumn DeWilde saying like, all right, we, ha- we can't, like, I can't, we're not going to write a whole new script. We're not going to write Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, but for <laughs> the, the, for the, the, you know, the downstairs. Um, and so, uh, but we got to put these fuckers on screen. Otherwise I can't make this fucking movie. Do you know what I mean? Right. I, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but no, I, I get, I get the arguments. I'm not, I'm not dismissing the argument. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to anchor us. I'm trying not to give into astonishment. That is what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I know it's a different show. Yeah, I I I would just say that it is. It feels very noticeable in the context of like period pieces Mm -hmm. and Austin adaptations in general. But it's not. It's definitely not revolutionary. Or nor do I feel like it's really saying something substantive um, that would. I don't know. Like, I don't really think it's putting itself out on a line to be like, I get what's been done in the past, but here's how we're, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
so we get through the preliminaries pretty quickly. Uh, Emma's sort of adoptive mother is getting married to uh, Frank Weston. And sorry, uh, I'm not sure what that, that is his first name. Uh, Frank Churchill is the son. Churchill's the son. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What's Mr. Uh, What's Mr. Weston's name? Eh, it's Mr. Weston. Who Mr. Weston. That's, <laughs> that's how he's referred to for the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, but she is getting married, and Emma is once again losing a maternal figure in her life. And we go from the wedding scene uh, that she's, which is why she was getting the flowers and what she was preparing for. Uh, you know, very much trying to put on a brave face for something that is something of a trauma. And then we do get into our introduction of Knightley. Uh, and Kato, you alluded to it earlier. Um, a lot of reviews of this movie mention the way he's introduced, uh, which is that the first thing we really see of him is him naked, yeah. getting dressed and prepared to go out. <laughs> and I saw a lot of people interpret this as kind of a very beefcakey introduction to oh. Knightley. But yeah, I, I, but I'm with you. Like, I think there's a vulnerability to that scene. Like, I think there. The scene worked for me in that it really drives home how much of a construct is the image of a gentleman uh. in this period, right? We see him getting out of the bath, basically, and, you know, he's a little awkward, a little shy, like he's he's vulnerable in that way. And then the rest of that is with the help of a servant putting on all the social armor of class and status uh, that allows him to go out and perform being... Mr. Knightley of Dunwell Abbey. Uh, but I th- like, what, what do we make of this? What do we make of this Knightley? Cause we, at this point we've seen many different takes on sort of the Austin uh, romantic lead. What do we think of this introduction? What do we think of this take on the character? I found, so I'm, I'm sort of uh, poisoned in a sense because <laughs> I came into this I came into this immediately after watching um, uh, Johnny Flynn, who plays who plays Knightley here, um, in the 2018 Vanity Fair, um, where he plays the like softest, kindest boy who's ever been. Um, uh, Dobbin. Um, his name is William Dobbin. He is he is like the. I mean, I I actually didn't mean that in like an insulting sense like i i I, or like in a i mean this in like his the the character william dobbin is the like deep heart of vanity Mm -hmm. fair the like un unbending love the like belief in possibility and and the sort of like the the soul of of this this romance and this uh kind of tragic comedy that spans an entire napoleonic war (laughs) um and so to go from that where I'd already been uh, – you have to understand that Vanity Fair is like caricature work more than character work in a lot of places. And so to come from that where he looks like he does in this – you know, there's obviously costume differentiation. This is not a one-to-one in terms of time period or anything like that. But it was it was actually a little hard for me to, to buy him as harsh for that reason. Um, uh, again – uh, compared to the Johnny Johnny Lee Miller uh, 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 version of Knightley, who's uh, here's the difference. I feel like the 
the version of Knightley in the the 2020 uh, Emma felt feels a lot like the person who goes to a party who is just like bemused uh, and and kind of um uh does not necessarily like anyone at the party but is happy to be there still generally right is like hey i'm i'm in this space the Johnny Lee Miller uh uh nightly is this just sharp edge who when when he needs to bring that axe down it really fucking stings here i never quite bought him as adjudicator of the civil um if that makes sense but again mm-hmm. i i'm it is i'm a week i watched this a week after i'd seen vanity <laughs> fair in which he was literally a big golden retriever for seven <laughs> hours like so it was it was i i you know want to mark that my my experience is probably not universal but people should go watch that vanity fair by the way the vanity fair fucking slaps it's seven hours it's on <laughs> i think it's streaming somewhere people should go look it up yeah, I think that first, I mean, I definitely didn't get beefcake from his introduction. Like, <laughs> That's what I think, Rob has written in the notes here. Is <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, need to, I need to reject that really quick. I need to go on the record rejecting him as beefcake. Um, I think similar to what Kato was saying earlier, it felt so awkward. Like, I felt so uncomfortable watching this that I was like, like... I don't know. I wasn't really it didn't have the same classic effect of like uh you know like handsome gentleman like <laughs> period piece handsome gentleman is the eye of everybody's uh apple. Wait, no. Apple. Yeah. <laughs> of everybody's eye is like the object of affection for Everyone in this film, when he mm-hmm. walks in, it's just undeniable that he's just, like, the hottest shit in the planet. Um, to me, like, he already... Everyone in this film kind of, like, it felt sort of like the the veil of astonishment. Like, the veil of, like, ah, like, look at how perfect and every, you know, like, beautiful everyone and everything was um, has been already lifted off by, like, the... Mm-hmm weird the little brattiness in the beginning and like just i'm not sympathizing with anyone so i'm not really like so far i'm not really like falling in love with anyone so far so he's like i don't know it just like humbles him not humbles him like to in my in my reading of him and like the way that i'm perceiving him he's just like not this like grand gentleman as much to me because i literally just saw him getting his pants put on like (laughs) well they saved that for frank churchill right frank churchill is that right anyway sorry go ahead well i was just gonna say and during that it's not just that it's an awkward seat like he looks uncomfortable like it Mm -hmm. he doesn't it's not like like emma being like nonchalant about somebody else dressing and undressing her and like not really paying attention like it feels like to at least the way i read it was that like he nightly is not like like this is what must what this is what is done this is what must be done but he's too aware of the other person to uh not be awkward about it right um and so like yeah like to me that like that's that's set up red very much like like this person is a little more down to earth than the other people of his class 
level, right? Like he, then immediately after, despite you have the being scene. one of the wealthiest people right. in all right. of the scenes that right. he's in, yeah, <laughs> right. It's more about like his thoughts about his 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 um what must be done at his class level or like what is even like um due to him like it, it, like i feel like some people in this are like yeah of course i'm gonna get dressed and t- it almost feels like he's thinking like all right let's get this over with like yeah okay uh but, um uh you know like it like and then you have the scene immediately after where he uh is like going to walk and his mm-hmm. mate is like, we have fucking, like, what are you doing? You have all this, you're fucking rich. Why are you walking? You know, like. I like to walk. And yeah. His everything in, and this is referred to in the 2006 version as well, is a bit of a weird vibe around him and Dunwall Abbey. Like, I'm not sure I fully, I'm not sure I've seen the yeah. version of this that fully makes me make sense of Knightley himself. Because here we also have, yeah, he's saying, I don't, I don't, don't prepare the carriage. I'm just going to walk over to my friend's house. Don't, don't worry about me. And then all these statues in the gallery are covered, like Dunwell Abbey, which is this home that we're told a few times, uh, you know, that he really does love that, you, you know, you can't imagine Knightley being away from Dunwell Abbey and hardly anybody ever gets to see it. Uh, but he doesn't really live in it. In he's that not way, taking right? it in, right? It's not yeah. like he's. Yeah, it's yeah. not like he's exploiting what he has for to its greatest ends. Like, ah, uh, yes, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go do some pacing in the statuary. I'll settle in for a night of writing in the study. Like, no, like we don't really get a photo of that a, a, at all. Um, we get a lot of him chuckling to himself. We get a lot of him. Again, I think the comparison that I was trying to make before was that the 2006 version of him uh, is is kind of, you know poking at things constantly is kind of uh kind of pinning you know uh things and this version is like literally very much like jim halperding very much like laughing to himself and to the audience when when the painting is revealed when some other bullshit happens like is is in that mode to the to the effect that i actually just checked to see if there were compilation videos of Mr. Knightley, because this is a thing that fandom does. And I found Mr. <laughs> Knightley being amused for almost four minutes straight. And it's just, <laughs> oh all, it's just all of the times that he, I've not watched oh. it with audio or anything, but it is just all the times that he does the little like, like almost like a shrugging little laugh to himself, a uh-huh. look aside, yeah. a little like sticks his tongue out to like, kind of just, you know, express his, his, uh, warmth, uh, his like warmth and dismissal at the same time, which is a strange trait to have, but it is a very knightly trait to have. So, mm. um, anyway, He's thinking what everybody's saying. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Unlike Jim Halpert, not secretly a piece of shit though. <laughs> yeah, mm. Jim Halpert wasn't a secret piece of shit either. We were all just, we were all just missed it. We all just missed. We had a blindfold on. We thought he was so that's funny. A different time. <laughs> Most of us had not been in like an office workplace before and had to deal with people who thought they were the Jim Halpert of the room. If you think you're the Jim Halpert of whatever oh. the fuck environment you're in, just stop. Just, just stop. fucking stop it. Anyway. Please. Anyway. Be anyone else. Yeah. Um, uh, the other thing I think they're trying to deal with here is, I, I to me it felt like very early on, they are trying to... This is a line that different adaptations of this story have to walk, which is to what degree is Knightley an older mentor figure to Emma? To what degree is he the boy next door? This seems to be leaning hard on 
the boy next door. Uh-huh. Because the first thing that happens is she basically tries to stage a scene when she sees him arriving. Mm-hmm. Like, she races <laughs> over to the piano and pretends to be in the middle of practice. That's so funny. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> and seems to expect that he will come over and bother her or be impressed or engage with it at all. And right. instead he ends up talking to her father. And she manages to play, like, two bars of music, <laughs> if that... <laughs> Before she realizes that he's just not going to, he's going to sit there and talk to her dad, um, and he is not going to acknowledge that she is practicing, and she's a little bit pissed about it. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's very, the relationship here is very much one of, they are much closer to peers than a lot of other adaptations we've seen. And even if it's not articulated yet, there is clearly... Not necessarily open attraction, but there is a sort of smitten quality to Emma, at least, mm-hmm. yeah. in terms yeah. of, like, his attention. Yeah, I feel like this was, like, one of the first things that we talked about, Austin, after we, after I saw it. True. I was, like, so confused at as to their relationship, and then you said they were cousins? Like, they're cousins, and he's 10 years older than her. Yeah. And neither of those things are clear in the film. Not uh, at all. He's mm-hmm. very much the boy next door. He's the, the less said, the better, really. I think this <laughs> I mean, is a smart update. Honestly. We've gone down this road. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you're adapting Emma in 2020, maybe just don't get into right. their I, respective <laughs> ages or what their relationship has been. Mm-hmm. I'm good with that, honestly. This is the retcon that we need. <laughs> it's, it's super interesting because so much of what this story is does hinge on Knightley, does hinge on Emma wanting approval from Knightley and and him being one of the only people she she wants approval from um uh in that way at the at the top of the of the book um and that uh, and also she can't even admit to herself necessarily that she wants that approval necessarily right. um but that is how she she acts and then and then when he finally retracts it is the kind of pivot point for who she is and leads us into the final act um, so yeah, I, I actually do wonder to some degree, is there a, we, t- you know, we talked about this with the, with the, the, you know, the servants is like, is this the director and the writer being like, Hey, I love so much of this story, but we cannot have an explicit like mentor mentee relationship on screen without spending time digging into the like that that dynamic in a more serious way, and right. I don't the have the minute, time the to do that. The minute your Emma adaptation is like trying to explain, like, now let me explain why this isn't grooming, right? And right. this is all cool. Like at that point, the romantic comedy is just lead, like just right. just well, bleeding out. It of the also story. it also feel I think speaks to why the top of this film feels so compressed. Um, yeah. Again, not that the other adaptation I've seen actually spends time, spends a lot of time with who Emma was as a child, but here we get none of it, really, um, because the second you have to imagine her at 13, you have to imagine him at 23, and that's right. gross as shit, and like immediately fucks up that relationship dynamic in a way where you're like, all right, I have to... And we've talked, we talked, y'all talked about this. I wasn't on this episode, but y'all talked about these elements with Clueless, which deals with some of them also, obviously. Um, mm. uh, and, and I think that the film is stronger for just side, sidebarring those things. And if you can take it yeah. on its own, it can just do the romance. And it can be that these are two peers, these are two peers who are often correcting each other, um, yeah. who are <laughs> often, except I actually wish there was way more banter and bickering in this version. There is not enough bickering in this version. It kills <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Anyway, I agree. I, it just, I think given the, the 
for like the genre of this film, like given that it's being treated very much as a light comedy, it's not really taking a hard stance on anything. It would be very difficult, I think, to like do. I think the, the film is better for leaving that. Like it feels like these two people have grown up together. Yeah. It's like definitely boy next door. It's like you've spent so much of your lives together that there's yeah. like it's a little competitive. It's a little it's all those neighbor like, you know, do you think that they were town things? Do you think that they were that there's a version of this that they imagined even briefly that went further and literally rewrote him as just the boy next door. And then they decided to be additive by subtracting um, instead that like, because they could have just said, here's this dude who lives next to her and they're yeah. the same age and they've grown up next to each other and they've been friends their whole lives. And instead of doing that, they just kind of remove those questions and let you fill in the gaps that way, which for an audience, many of whom will have not have seen a previous version of Emma or have read the book, that will do the work for them, which is, yeah. inter- which is an interesting technique. I f- the weird thing is, though, if he's just the boy next door, it becomes a much less interesting romance in some ways. Like the, the, the obstacle in their relationship is to a degree they – see each other in these in some of the narrow ways that we do when early adulthood is kind of when you have a few opportunities to redefine yourself yeah. and be mm-hmm. like this is how I want to be treated yeah. as a person right like I'm now my own individual agent I have agency here is how I want to engage with the world and here's how I want the world to engage with me one of the dynamics in Emma is that they just have so much context for each other and yeah. they have so much of their development as people has been informed by their presence in each other's lives that I think part of what makes their relationship prickly is that and what makes their their relationship interesting as it develops is that the thing that makes this a less natural thought to them is the fact that to a degree familiarity has bred contempt right or mm-hmm. that like like this is not this is not a complication they've been interested in introducing to what has been a pretty comfortable life to date yeah, I don't really think you need the like the age dynamic to be able to accomplish that. I think we can know people. We can grow up with people. We can see like all of each other's phases. Uh-huh. We can see like the different types of hobbies we've picked up and have dropped and see, you know, we we can watch each other go through those kinds of things and develop that especially you know, um, especially given that if they're, like, around the same age, like, there's, like, this sort of competition and they're figuring it out around the same time, but they're also kind of observing each other and that's their benchmark of, like, change is with each other, given that they mm-hmm. don't really have a lot of yeah. pe- other peers It's, like, a deeply age. provincial location. They, it's yeah. them. That's who they have it's, is that's, them. That's it. That's all you got. Um, so to me, I can see the way that they look down on each other and then admire each other. Like that feels very natural and it's, it's still interesting without having like an added sort of age or power dynamic to the relationship. Right. It's the, it's kind of the rom-com best friend in a way almost. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just like the, the, the one that isn't the, the object of the main character's affection, but is always there. 
like has been always there, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's but too many but too many rom coms have made that boring. I think I think yeah. that's why there's got to be right. this notion of they've been in each other's society in some other ways for years because otherwise you are just like you might as well have Jennifer Aniston in this fucking thing. Uh, <laughs> Damn. Where, <laughs> Damn. Damn. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> Rob's bringing in all that smoke. You don't want it. You don't want it with no, Rob's I, acne. I, see, <laughs> I totally see what you're coming from. I mean, I yeah. think what we're missing is that is what Austin was talking about before is like that bickering is like maybe uh, uh, Knightley being a little bit more severe, a little bit, uh, you know, uh, more dismissive yeah. of her, of her being like... <sighs> more disinterested in him and like mm. ignoring him and doing things out of retaliation. Actually, I don't know. Like I, I think, think, yeah, I think this version is, a, is scared to make nightly unlikable. Me too. In some ways. 100%. It's not scared yeah. of making him unlikable. No. It goes pretty far in portraying her as, as pretty like, there's some pretty rough scenes with the yeah, way dude. Anya Taylor Joy like performs this character. It's, oh it's a real God. good rendition. Oh I love it. Uh, that's so Knightley, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, Knightley's kind of an officious, superior asshole in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like he thinks he knows better. Like a lot of the reason he brings out the worst in Emma at times, and in some ways also brings out the best. But he also does drive the worst because he's so fucking superior mm-hmm. in some ways and condescending. And this version, because he's always more like. <laughs> chuckling to himself. He doesn't say what he's thinking. He doesn't actually condemn himself by being kind of an official, officious asshole right. in the way that really is pretty part and parcel of his relationship with Emma. The way I've always thought about their relationship is that there is a, a fucked up cycle and also it kicks off from a place of strange respect, which is why it's so hard for them to correct by the end. Um, uh, uh, Knightley as a character respects Emma enough to believe that he can give her vague guidance in the form of retorts and snapbacks and like, you know, little, little laughs and, and quick judgments and that she will do the work to fix herself as Mm -hmm. appropriate from there. That in fact insults her because he is not just being honest and saying what he means at any point. Um, And inevitably she ends up going further in a direction because there's no actual clarity there. Uh, uh, And and also frankly, because he wants to seem disinterested and wants to seem like you said, superior uh, in in a real way. And then like the big turn of this, of this story is when he finally just says specifically what she did wrong in a, in a scenario, instead of just saying, He doesn't just say badly done, Emma. He says, here is what that scenario we were just in was. You know that she doesn't have what you have. You know that she feels blessed by being out here with us. And you still had to go at her twice. You still had to just make her feel as small as possible. And it clicks with her because there's this moment of op- of like actual open right. uh, critique that is like, hey, here is the thing you did wrong. And it's not that she is like couldn't have theoretically gotten there herself at some point, but that is the moment for both of them where they say, oh, okay, I'm going to fix my behavior. And oh, okay, I'm going to be honest about this instead of trying to turn it into a punchline. Uh, yeah. And and without having those previous, a lot of those previous instances, there are still instances of it. I'm not saying that the film doesn't do it at all. And it's also, it's a two-hour film. It's not a seven-hour or whatever six-hour adaptation. I understand the the distinction there. But without making him look like a jerk sometimes, that moment is only a moment of growth for for Emma instead of also being a moment of growth for him, right? That's very true. Oh, I have a lot I want to say about that entire scene. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) That scene Um, is so much. 
Yeah, it's like honestly, worst picnic in movie history. Oh my like, god! Picnic at Hanging Rock god. is better than the picnic at Box Hill. Like <laughs> oh, absolutely. So fucking oh. I, watching that next to Natalie in the theater was the fucking best. Like, the whole <laughs> back half of this film, from the point at which Frank Churchill arrives oh, through god. the end, Rob Cotto, because you both know the story. Did you already Cotto? Had you already seen a version of this, or did you know the Emma story already? I went. Uh, we watched the uh, Gwyneth Paltrow one before okay. we went to see this. So yeah. okay, so at the very yeah, least, I should you, say. Yes, I I didn't I didn't know anything about Emma. <laughs> you'd seen going Clueless, into this I movie. guess. You knew you'd seen Clueless, but that's yeah, it. I've seen Clueless, but I wasn't thinking. I no. did not make that connection at the time. <laughs> sure, I did not. well, because so in the, Clueless, this scene doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. Right. It's fucking. Um, well, it exists, but well, it's like the, the horrible. It's the 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 thing she says to the fucking maid. Right. In the kitchen, right. it's like small, tiny, a, and you barely yeah, know yeah, that yeah. character. Yeah. Like, a, they, um, yeah. Yes. What does she say to the maid? Some racist shit. Like, oh it? Yeah, yeah, it was like, do you? I don't speak Mexican or something like yeah. that. Uh-huh. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not the same thing. No, no. it's not. It's, it's not. not. They fucking totally botched that no. scene. It's like not uh-huh. at all in yeah. Clueless. Um, anyway, uh, anyway, but I just want to say again, watching this film <laughs> next to someone who had did not know the Frank Churchill stuff, did not know the uh, picnic scene was coming. Did uh, not here's know the, a bold direction. Oh, mwah, love it. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> here's a bold direction of this movie that I do respect it for. This is the only adaptation that makes it pretty much explicit that Frank Churchill's a murderer. Uh, what? So, <laughs> excuse me. Excuse me. Qu- oh, we'll get there. Okay. We will get there. Uh, uh, <laughs> Do we so, need to take a break? Do we need to take a break? Actually, we should take a break. We should take a break. We should take an actual break. Uh. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll, we'll be back with more Emma uh, after the break. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Let's get to our next major introduction because I'm a little puzzled by this one. We meet Harriet, uh, who is one of the most important characters in the story. And I watched this twice. Where does Harriet come from? Kato, you just watched this. How do we get from the whole scene with with Knightley and the change with uh, Mrs. Weston no longer living with uh, Emma and her father? Uh, How do we get to Harriet is now a consistent presence in Emma's life. Uh, I honestly don't remember because it feels kind of quick, right? Like, I think somebody just refers to it offhanded as she's made friends with this girl at the local school. Yeah. She, is like, it a school? It's, it's a, a boarding school? house. It's a boarding house school. It's a school. Yeah. Right. With all the girls in red. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, like a board, it's like a boarding house, right? Yeah, it's a boarding house. Um, she's like, in, I mean, 
what happens here? She like invites her over and they have that scene where she's like over for, I don't know if this is the first time I, I kind of assumed it was the first time because at the end of the, at, at the end of this scene, she invites her over the next day and she seems very excited by that. So it feels like these are some of their first like hangouts at the house, at least even if she's somehow met her in town, I guess, I guess that's probably where they met. Right. But like, they don't really talk about it all that much. I feel like, um, what I really, something that I really enjoyed about that intro scene, though, with her is the kind of small moments you catch uh, Harriet looking over at Emma and, like, mirroring movements and, like, trying to learn, like, like she obviously understands the difference in their social situation in a way that where she's like, I'm supposed to be like Emma. <laughs> I'm supposed to like, she like goes to like pick up the bit, like the cookie or whatever and like stops herself before, em- because Emma hasn't picked it up yet. Like she hasn't started eating yet. Right. And she like breaks right near the end of that, that specific scene just cause it's like, I've waited long enough. Whatever. I'm going to eat this thing. I'm very excited about. But um, there is that, they kind of set up that, that dynamic right away of like, she's ready and willing to, mirror and take cues from Emma from the from the jump. Yeah, I think um Mia Goff does a very good job here with Harriet who can be played as kind of a goofy dummy who mm. is just consistently like being condescended to. Uh I think Goth's take on Harriet is very much Harriet never loses sight of her position, right? Right. And she's always sort of keenly aware of its vulnerabilities but also is maybe open to some of its opportunities. And so like it's a, I think this is a very good version of Harriet who is a little bit savvier uh, than some other versions of this character mm-hmm. that we've seen, but is also still kind of open hearted and naive in a way that is essential to the character too. Right. And it's really Emma's influence is going to play up or downplay these elements of the character as Harriet tries to, adapt herself to what Emma is putting out there. Uh, but I do very much like this take on the character. I do too. I think that um, in some ways, I think this is the, you know, what they did was shorten the distance between Knightley and Emma uh, socially in terms of the dynamic and increase the one between Harriet and Emma. Um, mm. uh, seeing her with the, in the school, seeing her cut that cake or whatever that game was, whatever they were doing. Yeah. Oh my God. It is such a great scene. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and again, by bringing those characters to the foreground, by bringing, even though, I mean, by bringing them from not being on screen to being in the background, um, right. they're suddenly visible. And that really, really sells the degree to which Harriet does not really have a chance of moving into society the way that Emma believes that with the right manipulation she can make happen um uh and so i think from the jump there is like a, uh she comes across as really charming and really out of her depth in a way that that made me very protective um which is which i think a lot has to go to to me goth's performance for sure um it's right here we also start to get some of these first scene transitions where the soundtrack uh, really does announce itself uh, a great deal. You know, there's after we meet Harriet, there's a cut to uh, morning in town as the girls are all walking along in their uh, like cardinal cloaks. And it really did drive home. This feels like such a. There are two major influences on this movie to me. It feels like it like 
sometimes this movie feels a lot like a Cohen Cohen Brothers adaptation of Austin, and there are other ways in which it feels very Wes Anderson. Yeah, uh, but yeah. in terms of the musical score, the way that it leans really heavily on this curious mix of like old gospel music that is based on old English folk tunes, but the versions we're hearing in the arrangements sound very much like post-Great Awakening uh, hymnals that you'd hear in the States. Uh, but it does really make this feel like a much more rural and like backwater version of mm-hmm. Austin in some ways than than we're used to saying. What what did you all make of some of these scene transitions and the way music is used throughout this film? I remember leaving, and Natalie immediately said that she loved the score. So I'm really curious. Yeah, I mean it. Uh, it was. It felt, if anything, it felt like this was a take on Emma. Mm. Like, it made Mm. it feel like I'm watching someone's interpretation of Emma um, and just, like, really drilled that in for me rather than me trying to feel like I'm in this time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Whatever that, you know what I mean? Like, Like, instead of trying to set set this like portal to another era it's like no no no, we all know this story except me obviously um we all know the story of emma um there have been lots of adaptations of it in various different ways and this is very much a interpretation um and the (laughs) i think i like I forget what I said. I was like, is this like Father John Misty or something? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it, was, it isn't. But in fact, it is the um, it is the woman who did um, – or not all of it, obviously. I think there's probably like soundtrack supervision also. But the original mm-hmm. score uh, is by – I had it up and I've lost Isabel it. Isabel Waller-Bridge. There we go. Who also did the score for Fleabag recently. Um, mm. uh, and I think that, that I think that it works so well. Um, it I've works al- really well. I've yeah. always loved Emma. I said earlier, provincial, like the sense of, I mean, London is not that far in contemporary terms. 16 uh, miles. 16 <laughs> miles. Close enough for Frank Churchill to go there in a day, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but the feeling is you're so far removed from society. Specifically, Emma isn't, or not from society, but yeah, from society. Emma is not seeing these spaces. Emma is not having a ball every month. Emma mm-hmm. is not competing and jostling with others for her romantic interests in the in up until this moment in her life, right? Like there is not right. she's not engaged uh in the way um uh that some of the other Austin protagonists are. Um and I've always felt that uh in in other uh, adaptations I've seen, but I've never felt so strongly the that that absence demands a different presence. Do you know what I mean? And in this case, by including this other style of music that we do not uh, intuitively associate with with this style of, of uh, drama, um, I think that it was really like it shook me out of my place in a way, which is really, really good. I like that yeah. feeling of, of watching something and being, oh, this is not the, I didn't, I, this is not what I thought I'd be watching. And sometimes that can be like, a gimmick that can be a knight's tail doing we will rock you. <laughs> this is not that. This is, hey, remember, 
places are particular and have their own sounds and have their own vibes. And we can bring the pastoral nature of this. Remember the past, remember that, that pastoral and pasture come from similar, come from the same place. And that the music of the pasture is probably not the harpsichord, you know? Um, uh, There's other, there are other musical traditions that, that should be happening here. Uh, That said, briefly, just as like a, I make a sign of the cross, over my, you know, my critical theory textbooks. Uh, <laughs> we all know, of course, that the, there is a productive, there is a, a, a literal attempt by reactionaries in the beginning of the 20th century to literally produce the sort of nostalgic British folk history, um, and that such a thing didn't really exist the way that that it's often presented. So I just wanted to like, listen, I know you don't have to send me, you don't have to send me letters to. Read about the Levises. I know about the Levises. It's okay. We can move on. But I think that this still produces fictionally that space in a way that I think is really, 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 really uh, uh, effective. In in it because it ties back to the stakes. Because it ties back to Emma's not leaving this place. Emma is not going mm-hmm. to go to some ball and meet an incredible suitor. This is it. Like the dance that happens is the is. As far as we're concerned, the first dance in her life, it couldn't have been because she's skilled enough to do it, but maybe there's one a year, you know, it's a big fucking deal. Um, and I think the musical element of the, of the film really helps sell that in a serious way. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's a smart decision because I think so often uh, period pieces, they tend, they tend to say, okay, well, what are the dates of this, uh, of this story? Uh, so mm-hmm. people are probably listening to Baroque music from just prior to that era, mm-hmm. and like probably not, like not everyone was hanging out. Like all, all right, like, yeah, everyone let's had jam a radio. Out some good chamber music, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> right. And and so like chances are like for for a person like Emma and in her community, like what you, what musicians in your area are more likely to be playing is stuff that's closer to old country tunes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff that there is, you know, there, there are versions of these songs, uh, you know, from the south of England to Ireland all the way up into Scotland, right? Like they, they're just everywhere. Um, I do feel like I, it's, I do feel like it's deployed very purposefully as even when the ball happens, the ball happens in town. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. But when we hear music in the house, it is people playing piano and playing those sort of classical yes. things all the time, right? So like it's this 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 almost like, you know, you're in at a big in a big house, you're in higher society than in town always, right? And well, except I think it's very just to your point, I think it's very interesting that Emma plays a country air when it's time uh-huh. her time to sing a song, but Jane Fairfax oh, yeah. plays a uh, piece of classical music. Right. Mm. Um, and so, like, I think there's kind of a class marker thing that's being deployed in this film, right? Which is that, like, oh, can have you have you memorized uh, – <laughs> have, you, have you memorized <laughs> the, this this Haydn piece? Okay, then, then you are clearly, like, an accomplished person mm-hmm. uh, in sophisticated society. Are you singing The Last Rose of Summer uh, to, <laughs> with your eyes closed <laughs> to your friends? Ah, uh, then you're a little basic. God. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's what I have to say on the music. Music is good. Good job, music. Yeah, yeah. Good job, oh, music. Also, small note: uh, the ending, the song over the ending credits. You know who that is? Johnny Flynn, right? Yeah. Oh wow, that's, that's amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's very good. I love. I really like that song. I was like, why does this sound more contemporary than the other songs in the thing? So I looked it up, and it was. I was like, oh, yeah. oh, it's the actor. It's, it's nightly. Uh, that's Knight- nightly with the guitar. Going yeah. over oh. to Emma's place. Oh yeah. boy. God. Yeah. 
That's him. <laughs> One year after the end of this movie, like they're gathered together and like suddenly Knightley just like enters the room with a guitar and like, hey, mind if I just uh, I'll play some tunes? And you know, then I will sing together. God, Anyways, here's a... God, to be fair, Wonderwall could totally be the name of an estate in an Austin (laughs) drama in Austin. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. God. We've never gotten a a Death Comes to Pemberley style sequel to to Emma, have we, Rob? No, no, sadly. Uh, We're worse for it. (laughs) We are, but I think but I think we all know like it's just going to get too real around Mm. there i mean even austin's postscript to emma is kind of like you know there's some really ugly class dynamics that are gonna render these relationships inevitably (laughs) terminal (laughs) like that's that's austin's like sunny ending on Uh. the story (laughs) uh yeah no no austin like straight up says there's no way harriet and emma are gonna be friends when they like are fully grown harriet marries a farmer robert martin who Mm -hmm. who will probably grow in wealth but also grow in social distance as the time, right. as time continues, you know? Right. Which is, is, well, I was going to say something in this, in this movie, when the, the, like the end of the, the, where that relationship goes in the movie, at least seems to try to be pointing at the idea that they mm-hmm. will try, which may have been something different than the M at the beginning of the movie does mm-hmm. be given. That's like the whole, you know, don't associate with, uh, I forgot his name already. Martin, Robert uh, Martin, Robert, Robert Martin, um, yeah, Robert yeah. Martin, and all that. But um, guys with two first names. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's now that's that's what Emma really should have cottoned on to. That's why that guy right. was sucks. Nah. <laughs> like just oh Robert Robert Martin really huh? <laughs> uh, I, I do think so. Let's get to Robert Martin because, like, right from this, like, Robert Martin and the Martins are someone that ha- is a family that Harriet brings up right out of the gate, right? Like, when she meets Emma, she's already mm-hmm. this is the tail end of a summer where Harriet's already had something really exciting happen in her life, which is that she became friends with the Martins in the area. And the Martins are a respectable farming family. Uh, tenant farmers on the Knightley estate. But we do get early on the notion that for Harriet, she lo- she really admires and respects these people and has already struck up a really close friendship with Robert Martin uh, that's pretty advanced toward like the courtship phase. And Emma is going to parachute into the middle of that <laughs> and uh and slam the brakes on it and i think it's it's pretty brutal the way like this is i think where the movie is maybe nearly at its most unsparing of emma um she gets into her head that the local pastor uh mr elton is an eligible match for harriet and i want to get to his characterization Ooh. but i want to do that around when he gets the picture um, cause mm. I think that's really where Josh oh. O'Connor's take on Elton really like really takes wing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but, but she takes it into her head that Mr. Elton is a great match for Harriet. And, and to some extent, what is already happening is Emma has realized that 
there is a social distance that will continue to grow uh, between her and Harriet if Harriet marries the Martins. She expresses it very well, um, you know, basically lifting directly from Austin, uh, a very good summary of what the class dynamics here are, which is that uh, someone in Emma's position can pay, pay heed to the very poor and she can pay heed to people of her own station, but a respectable family of fairly well-off farmers like the Martins are socially beneath her, but not so far that they require her aid. They don't require her dropping off baskets of goodies, and therefore uh, they are as far above her notice as below, mm-hmm. is the way she cheerily puts it. But if Harriet goes into that orbit, then once again, Emma faces the prospect of yet another abandonment, right? Yet yeah. again, Emma has a female friend uh, that has now, like, once again, she's replaced an absence with uh, another woman in her life who can sort of... Uh, be her companion and immediately she has to confront the possibility oh this person might also leave uh-huh. uh, and socially that means it will be like Harriet vanished the way Mrs. Weston feels like she's vanished from from Emma's uh, life and I think the movie's very upfront about how incredibly selfish Emma's motivations are and how mm-hmm. really yeah. mean she is as she tries to undercut this thing it's yeah. miserable it's the so painful to watch. I was gonna say the the framing of the scene where they are walking, yes. and they stop, or rather, Harriet stops to talk to um uh, Robert Martin, but Emma does not, and the camera follows Emma, and they're like the that conversation and those people are kind of put in the background as Emma kind of like suddenly waits for her friend to catch up with her you know like it's immediately this separation of these two uh uh states of uh the 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 class separation is like made physical in that moment where you're not going to follow whatever what that conversation is over there because emma's above uh like even though she says she's not above it she's above it right Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it even in that moment, it feels unnecessarily cruel. Yeah. Like, it feels... Like, uh, Emma is not if so high society that it would be completely improper for her to interact with this person at all. Like, yeah. it it doesn't... It, it feels so pointed and intentional and rude and callous and gross that like uh-huh. it, it it's a very uh poignant moment of like showing just how far uh Emma this uh portrayal of Emma Anya's Emma is like willing to go to make it clear what the lines are and like very forcibly very intentionally move the chess pieces around so that she is like protects herself and protects who she wants to be close to her in a very self-serving way. You could adapt this film to where the thing that Emma is getting out of the play is the play is the Mm -hmm. like joy of being a matchmaker. And she fancies herself (laughs) one after setting up the first one. And then she does it a few other times. And this film just like discards that element. Like, the most important thing, and I think it's it is so important to this characterization, is that Harriet stay in her orbit. Is that Harriet be yes. mm-hmm. be her pet 
um, because otherwise, uh, and and uh, to be clear, like you could you could rescore this film and and you know you'd have to reshoot it and get some different performances. But this story can be a horror film in the sense of like Emma is trapped in this house with her ailing dad who is paranoid, who is uh, who is demanding a sort of codependence, and Emma has just lost the one outside person who she can trust intimately. Um, and the the only other person in her life in a serious way is Knightley, who will not mm-hmm. commit to anything. And so suddenly you're stuck in this house and you're grasping for anyone to hold on close and you find someone and then that person tells you she's going to a place that you cannot go to because the paternalistic and patriarchal society you live in says you cannot go there with her. You will not be able to be in her life anymore when she goes. And so she's going to go away. And so in a, in a terrible, harmful, still selfish grasp, you, you try to rearrange things to keep Harriet close to you. Um, mm-hmm. And that version of the film is probably also sick. Um, this, <laughs> yeah, version, this, this version of it is, is miserable because Emma has such freedom. She is as free as can yeah, be right. in this house. She, like, yes, her father, she, she does not want to leave her father in a serious way and not even to go to live next door, which is absurd. <laughs> and actually that bit of the story doesn't quite work when you've seen this Bill Nighy version of her father. Um, but uh, it really just makes her seem cruel. Uh, and, 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 and it is, it is, it is cruel and selfish um, because suddenly she isn't stuck in the system. She's wielding the system. Um, yeah, yeah. and wielding her position in it so that she's a little less bored, um, the, you know? The Ramola Garai performance is very much, Emma can't help being a certain way sometimes. Like, there's a vulnerability to that performance. Like, Garai's Emma, things, she, like, her feelings run away from her, and she overreacts, and she does things without really, like, premeditation, right? She's very she's very clever. She, she you know, she can act with uh she can plan but at the same time a lot of what is motivating her is very much like from the shoulder this emma is much more calculating i think that really comes through in a scene that austin to your point there's a version of this that comes across like a uh horror film almost when harriet gets the proposal letter from robert martin and she comes to emma while emma's being dressed and she's excited because she thinks you know, I've done it. Like I've, this is an eligible match. Uh, this is great. And immediately she picks up the vibe that Emma is not happy and starts trying to feel out, well, what does Emma want to have happen in this situation? Like what is Emma's feelings about this? But the way this entire scene is shot is all through the uncertainty on Harriet's face as she tries to scrutinize Emma's reactions and then Emma's facing away from her. So we're largely observing her through a mirror or as she sort of like looks away and out of the room away from Harriet and sort of uses gaze aversion to close and open distance between her and Harriet, Harriet very uh, tactically. It's a really brutal scene because it is Emma at her most manipulative and at her coldest. And I think it's, it also does drive home the degree to which like Anya Taylor Joy is the like LeBron James of emoting around the eyes. Yes, um, yeah. all the acting is incredible. All the eyes. It's so good. Like she, she already has like very large, expressive eyes, but the way, like, just the way, like, she sort of tightens her face around, and like the way her eyes flick, and 
just every you you read every single nasty thought and every mm-hmm. fear and every <laughs> like moment of decision in her face without her hardly saying anything. It's an incredible scene, and it is the scene where I think the movie's maybe at its bravest in making us not like this Emma at all. And yeah. I feel like when the servants flee the room as this discussion <laughs> happens, yep. it is it does feel a little bit like oh the monster is awakened. Yeah, and you can see there's like I feel like I remember there being a moment of her like feeling the vulnerability of potentially losing this friend. Like she, like there, I feel like her first reaction in her eyes is like fear is like, Oh, uh, like I, I don't know. Like I need, I need to, what am I going to do? And then she immediately switches and like goes into this like calculated chess game of keeping her close to her. But there's like, you can tell for a second that she's, she's like, this cannot be, this cannot be happening. And then it just like moves yeah. into this. And it's happening to cold. her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Never for a moment is this a Harriet moment. Oh, no. Right. right. No. The, it's funny is I, I, I'm now connecting also the sort of the previous relationship that I talked about with Knightley and Emma being about him not being willing, him coming from a, an honest place uh, I think Emma can can connect the dots herself. I can just be the sort of like prickly asshole who who gives her the little push. I can give, I can be the horsefly that leads her down the path to understanding. Um, is actually weaponized by Emma when this letter comes against Harriet in the ways like I'm not gonna listen. I'm not saying what this letter says. I'm not yeah. going to be the one who or tells you what you should do, rather. I'm not going to be the one who tells you. You can decide. I believe in you, Harriet. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. completely leveraging every last ounce of you know uh, communicative ability to push her to making the wrong decision, the, to, to making the decision that, that Emma wants, um, is – so fascinating that that is the kind of like way that that skill set was inherited because that is how it is felt for Emma. Emma feels that from Knightley as demeaning and as controlling and then is willing to use that same technique on Harriet because after all, Knightley is Knightley and Knightley, you know what I mean? Like that's just her relationship with Knightley already. It's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about it until until this conversation. Um, because if she had, if she had instead had just said, Harriet, I know that you want to marry this dude because he's a hot, rich <laughs> farmer. Hashtag farmers only. I get it. But I need you to know I'm not going to get to be your friend for a bunch of reasons that have nothing to do with my judgment of you and your character. Um, uh, and though I don't like the farmer because he's a fucking farmer, like I know you'll probably like him a lot. But I don't want you to to marry this dude. That conversation like gets to be productive, and it's probably still disastrous for different reasons. Yeah. Um, but like, she can't even have that conversation with her friend because she doesn't know how to be open in that way. Um, and also because, frankly, are they that close of friends at all? Uh, no, <laughs> not yeah. really. Um, and it's it's so much more telling to their relationship that she doesn't open up and that it, she feels like upon that that Anya's or that Emma is able to just move around and like just gesture at uh mm-hmm. it's like it's like it's a test 
It is, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. Emma is giving Harriet the test. It's like, you've been in my company for a few weeks or months now. You've seen how I move about in society. I've taught you all I can t- teach you. Like, make the decision. It, it feels so much more like, is Harriet going to rise to Emma's standard? Is Harriet going to make the right choice? Um, and Emma just, it's not, its it doesn't feel like Emma's trying to, I don't know, have like a real moment of intimacy here and a moment of like, when you, when you look at other female relationships in Austin books and things like that, there's like, so, talking about like the, the conversations we've had about Pride and Prejudice and like the mm-hmm. intimacy of sisterhood in female relationships and how Jane and Elizabeth are able to have this like incredible mode of communication. And though there are like uh, gaps there, there's it, it's still for the most part an open dialogue. Um, yet here it's like you can feel the, the, you can, on Emma standing literally on a step stool oh, is like no. so important. <laughs> is so important here uh, to how this how this whole scene feels like. It's really striking the degree to which Emma feels like a much sadder story than Pride and Prejudice. Even though Pride and Prejudice has very scary, like the stakes are very high for the Bennets. But the thing that, as dysfunctional as that family can be, like. Jane and Lizzie will always have each other, right? That mm-hmm. there's always been that companionship. Whereas this version, like Emma, and, and, and Kata, you just pulled some really terrific stills from this scene. This Emma is so fast to snap back to moments of trauma and so fast to contemplate, like, just how lonely her life ki- yeah. is yeah. in some ways. And I think the re- thing that, the reason we can forgive her is that if this were just a spoiled rich girl, that would be like, she'd be, she'd be a terrible protagonist in, in a lot of ways. But what we're dealing with is somebody who's very clever, who is reacting from a place of really deep seated pain and fear. And it is horrible behavior, but it is also forgivable in some ways because it is coming from from this place of she doesn't have real control over the things this stuff stirs up for her right like this these these are her third rails mm-hmm. totally um so she sees off the uh the engage the the threat that harriet might get engaged to robert martin uh we also see her trying to further the courtship uh, that she thinks is happening between Harriet and Josh Connors, Mr. Elton. And we get perhaps the most uh, <sighs> elaborate version of the mix up around the picture that Emma has painted of, of Harriet. <laughs> Hold on. We also have to say in terms of portrayals of Emma, yeah. this version is kind of the biggest talentless dumbass version of Emma, right? <laughs> like in terms of like oh, stuff yeah. she is capable of doing. Uh is this is this 
one of our one of our less accomplished. <laughs> can I get a screen women? cap? Can I get a screen cap of that painting if possible? I really, gotta, <laughs> oh my God, I really gotta see it, please. Paintings. And that's one of her better pieces. I know it is. It really is too. She really tried. Oh she did God. really try. Like she yeah. did. She committed to this plan. She was. She did her best. But my God, what a, what it's, a talent! <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh. so exemplative of how self entertained she's had to be her whole life like she only has herself to play with and it like lives such an like it's so her mind is so insular to her own experience (laughs) that is this art like (laughs) (laughs) oh oh my god thank you yeah oh my god Oh this is, my god! You know that. Okay, listen, listen, nice. listen. That that landscape is actually really nice. That's that solid. Good. Yeah. I couldn't. I want to be a hundred percent clear. I couldn't do any of these, even the one that is an impish child with a ring and a stick. <laughs> no, and and to be fair, like she does a very decent caricature of her father, right? And like, yes. and so it's like things she loves a little more. She puts more care into. We get actually a decent picture of her father. We get a pretty catastrophic Miss Bates. Um, <laughs> yeah. I want to see the rest of that horse picture right now. There's a horse Please. over on the right. I oh, want to see the horse. Shit, you're right. I need to see, need to see show the legs. The show me the, show me the, the horse, horse stocks. But you're right. No, but like Emma is very much, there's this old SNL bit by Mike Myers. Uh, Austin, do you remember, do you ever see the sketch uh, Simon? Uh, Mike Myers is a little neglected British boy who goes oh, around yes. the world, but his only experience yes. is pictures in, he draws through hotel windows. This is him in the in the in the bathtub, right? Yeah, and I think to an extent that is yeah, uh, t- that is Emma, right? Of, of the world is something that happens at a remove that she sort of observes from from a distance. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Um, but Mr. Elton <laughs> O'Connor goes in a complete like it, it's just an absurd version of this character it is so good it's so he, unhinged it's incredible <laughs> unbelievable he has this picture framed and he oh comes back God. and it's not a fucking picture in a frame he comes back with a what looks like it's a, a door it's like uh-huh it's and double doors over the fucking frame it's incredible um, and we get the we get the wide shot of him standing, and it's all like he is all angles, right? He is he is oh, all yeah. like clasp hands, <laughs> like this ghastly rictus, uh, just frozen onto his face as he like whips the cover <laughs> off the door. Everyone's like, "Where the fuck is the picture?" Is, it's a double yeah. door, and then he claps his hands, and the two footmen. Uh, sort of give this look like, well, we're in it now. And they pull it open, and it's a music box. It's a fucking music box with Harriet, with that awful picture of Harriet uh, in the middle of it. Incredible. It's so fucking good. It's like one of the best moments of this entire film. It is just like so absurd and unexpected. And like, in any context, this would be fucking wild like this this entire frame should only be reserved for like the holiest of documents or something <laughs> yes, like a tabernacle even, like yeah. <laughs> can i tell you something amazing yes. I, I just found a shot of when they're doing the painting and i only just realized 
she's already kind of framed in that style. Like there is a frame behind her that is the backdrop. And it's just, uh-huh. if he right. saw that and was like, we've got to recreate that. I got to recreate the whole thing. I can't just recreate, <laughs> I can't just frame her. I have to build this folding backdrop that's behind her to contain the photo, to contain the picture. <laughs> it's, the oh. sa- it's also the same color as the room. Yes, which is, 100%. It's like, it is like he like studied the whole environment so and it funny. must be so. It must. Um, <laughs> he is also just chewing the scenery nonstop oh, yeah. in this film in so a way. And, you know, th- these sequences are probably the sequences where I feel like the servants are the most functional in giving you anything to hold on to, right? Uh-huh. Like, yeah. oh, you were saying before, you, Natalie, you kind of project yourself on the, the, you know, the maids and the and the servants who are moving around because, like, mm-hmm. they are, you're watching this happen. And it's like, if I was the, if I was in the theater by myself, I would have died because at least I could reach out and be like, Natalie, we're going to get through this together. This season. <laughs> but if I wasn't, I could at least reach out to these servants who were there having the same yeah. experience as me, being yeah. like, I have yeah. to hold together. This is just normal people <laughs> shit right my- here. <laughs> I need this job. I gotta I, have this job. Yeah, I gotta have this job. I yeah. can't laugh at these motherfuckers. Do not, do not let on. That you know how fucked up this is. Uh, okay, wait. But, why does? Here's a question. Here's a mm-hmm. question. Why does Harriet not see how fucked up this is? <laughs> why do the servants get to know that, but Harriet doesn't? And all, you know what I mean? Is this just the, is this her education? Harriet- Harriet is in this gray area, right? Or at least has been led to believe that she is in this gray space by Emma. Mm -hmm. Like, there's there's potential there for her to move up or down in society. And that's made very clear to her by Emma. Right. Whereas everyone else seems to know that that's... It, it, there's only one way for her to go and it's like hor- or two way it's horizontal or down right. basically um and i think it's because of that that she is like clinging on to and has been honestly fed and manipulated this <sighs> narrative for so long but harriet do i don't know yeah. i want the best for you i want i think she will be- in the future she'll she'll listen I feel like what's his name, George John, whatever the fucking farmer's <laughs> name is, Martin, Martin, whatever, Robert, Robert Martin, Robert, 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 Robert. That's Robert, Robert. That's the name of uh, the battle droid. That's what the battle droids say in Star Wars. Uh, um, the uh, he'll he'll I think living with Robert Martin will help will help uh, solve the the, the well, problem. We're gonna have there. a woke Harriet. Very, I think it she's will gonna come around. Well, it's just a matter of nobody pays attention to her. Nobody yeah. gives her consequence, right? Like it's a shitty picture of Harriet, but you know what? It's a picture of Harriet. True. Somebody mm-hmm. like took the effort to go and frame. Uh, like I get, like I think on some level she probably does see that. Like, is this all weird? This seems weird. But on the other hand, it could be really flattering. And she's more leaning into how heady that feels. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just wonder on. if she, I don't, I'm not sure she has any other benchmarks to go off of. Like similarly right. to Emma herself, Harriet's peers are like people in the board, are the other like women in the boarding house. And I, 
who knows how well, like, how long has she been there? I, th- I feel like it's almost as if she's just kind of, it feels like she's just gotten there. And she just doesn't have, like, I don't know. I feel like if Harriet went to, like, one other rich person's house, <laughs> yes. like, she would have been like, all right, this one, this one is something else. Like, uh-huh. But who knows? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe all of these idiots are fucking whack, but... <laughs> Let me tell you about the gentry, the landed gentry. All of these idiots (laughs) are fucking whack, in my opinion. Uh, Speaking of people who are whack, uh, he's not there, but his absence is very much a character. Mm. Uh, We go to Christmas at the Westons. Yeah. And it's good because, one, we get get to meet the extended uh, Woodhouse Knightley clan uh, because Emma's... Big sister is married to uh, Knightley's big brother, and oh, they have both their like, <laughs> yeah, they're both extreme versions of their siblings. Yeah, in some ways, like Emma's sister and Knightley's brother are both like the cranked up to eleven versions of the eccentricities of their home, uh, and so we do get a taste of. Oh, uh, Emma's sister is very much a hypochondriac who is she this is she now has her fourth child, but she still has that panic stricken nervousness of a first time parent. Mm-hmm. Right. Of, oh, my God, the baby coughed. What? The, no, it's actually the baby like shits itself while she's in Emma's <laughs> arms and she's convinced like, oh, my God, my baby is dying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's incredible. She seems to have internalized her father. Much more than like Emma, there's like moments of her, uh, like exemplifying some of her father's behaviors, but it, it's it seems very much as something he has taught or is like of his character, whereas Emma's sister is like another, uh, Emma's dad, basically, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. And Knightley's brother is very much the guy who, like, okay, so everyone's overreacting. I'm just going to chronically underreact. I'm going to be just so checked out and so bored by this. That at this point, it's become, like, pathological. Yeah. Like, I am just a snarky, detached asshole in every single scene because I need to be the only person who is not hitting the panic button because the baby farted. Uh, and so they're kind of, like, you can see what you can see the dynamic but also, they are so much to be around. Uh, and I don't know, maybe that's also kind of another of those, um, well, why hasn't happened for Knightley and Emma? Uh, possibly because there's this weird model of what a similar relationship, it's, it's weird fucked up trajectory that nobody really wants to say it, but like nobody wants to end up like that either. Um, but we get to Christmas at the Westons, and once again, Frank Churchill has not come and visited his father and uh, the new Mrs. Weston, uh, Isabel. And this is something that Knightley has been hammering from the opening of the movie. And I think this is probably the most aggressive I've seen a version of Emma B about this. Knightley, out of the gate, like sight unseen, thinks there's something up with Frank Churchill. Mm -hmm. Like his consistent position, and I do generally think this is good life advice, is like, 
watch what people actually do, right? Like watch what, like they will express their values through what they choose to do and not what they say. And Frank Churchill is a guy who is defined by flowery letters explaining why he's not there for this or that, but he's never there. And everyone else is keep, keeps waiting to see this impressive young man, uh, the return of Frank Churchill's, uh, Frank Weston's son. And Knightley is consistently out there saying like, there's no way this guy is any good yeah. at this point. We, we, we've seen enough, which is that we've seen nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to just get part of the story of Frank Churchill clear because I want to, I think I understand it, but I don't know that the film sells it. And we keep saying Frank Churchill, the son of Mr. Weston. And so the story here is Mr. Weston, this is from the book, Mr. Weston was a captain in the militia, marries. Uh, Mrs. Churchill. The Churchills are a very wealthy family. Mrs. Churchill dies. Mr. Weston remarries, has a second wife, Mrs. Weston. Uh, the first that first marriage produced Frank Churchill, who, when he was a teen, question mark, or maybe maybe even younger, younger. was adopted by by Mr. Churchill. Mrs. Churchill's sister, the dead Mrs. Churchill's sister, or sorry, uh, brother, uh, uh, Frank's uncle. And then he took the Churchill name, giving up the Weston name. He went to live mm-hmm. with his rich uncle and became Frank Churchill. And I am sure that that is the sort of thing that happened all the time. But given his characterization, I cannot help but believe that the reason that I think part of what makes makes the character effective as being an asshole is that we never have to call him Frank Weston because the Westons seem chill. The Westons yeah. are dope. They are like living nearby, having, okay, everybody come over for Christmas. We'll figure something out. Great. Love <laughs> it. Frank Churchill has to feel like he's from a different from a different household. Uh, and and there's a degree to which, like, of course, I'm sure that his adopted or his uncle or whatever, like, is the reason why that name change happened. But you get the sense that, like, no, 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 no. I did not want to be a Weston. I am a Churchill. And yeah. that is a, a fascinating little bit of character, like, uh, characterization. I wouldn't say it's character work because it is about, uh, through this point, certainly, his absence that over yeah. and over and over again – the Westons keep talking about their son, Frank Churchill, uh, because even though they don't, he doesn't have their own name, it's almost as if this is part of his accomplishment, is that he's risen to the status of being a Churchill, mm-hmm. um, even though Mr. Churchill or Mr. Weston previously had been married into the Churchill family, you know? So yeah. I think that's an interesting wrinkle to, to, yeah. the, to the introduction of Churchill, because the first time I de- heard the story, like it was, I didn't understand what that relationship was. It definitely feels like the film wants you to believe that it was it was his choice almost. Yeah. Something about the phrasing when they mentioned that he is no longer like they do say that oh not not right. Weston Churchill, Churchill. He, changed, he took he took his uncle's name I think is the way that you say it and it's like kind of to push that like this feels like that separation almost feels intentional like he mm. doesn't want to have that much to like you know to do his with disinterest them. yeah is, yeah well yeah and every. Every time he's talked about by his father, it's like, I hope he'll, like, it is like, it, it's really sad, yeah. actually, yeah. because he, like, you can tell that there's, like, a hope in his father's voice that, oh, this will be the time that he shows up. But every, from the very jump, from our very first inter- uh, introduction or the very first mention of Frank Churchill, 
he's missing from like very big things, right. like very yeah. huge moments Weddings, in his father's life. You know? Weddings, wedding, Christmas. <laughs> like these are like big. Presumably, th- in this society, there's it's a very. It was very glaring that his that that he would be absent, mm-hmm. um, to a way where he like it felt shitty, and you weren't sure like where in that relationship like the shittiness lie, like <laughs> if like if their relationship was like fraught or um you know you 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 don't really but you know that there's something weird happening here, and given that. Frank Churchill was like the one was this ambiguous enigma for so much of the film. Like you, it, you kind of couldn't help but to see through Emma's idea of him and immediately kind of come to the conclusion that oh, why is this guy not showing up for his family? Like that's very weird. That's a weird thing to do. Um, yeah, like I think this character would have made a. I am surprised the degree to which my understanding of Emma now depends on the opening of the 2006 version, Ugh. which gives a very quick rundown and does make some editorial choices about how to present this stuff. Like the 2006 version very much says about 15 years before the story begins, here's a series of tragedies that hit this town, mm-hmm. right? That Miss, Mr. Weston losing his first wife and Frank's, Frank's mother uh, is a thing that leaves him in a tough position when it comes to like raising a child by himself. And also there's kind of this um, really important, very rich family saying, Oh, we need an heir. So just give us that because you shouldn't have married. And you shouldn't have married into this family to begin with. Uh, so we'll take the kid and uh, we'll, we'll call it even. That's kind of the, that's the approach. The 2006 version uh, takes, I'm not sure that's disproven in this. Like, Frank's made choices, but again, I think Frank at this point has become someone who is uh, a chronic dissembler and probable killer. Uh, so, All right, we have I, to, like, okay, let's, that, can we get to it? Give him, lay, lay out the case against yet? Frank Churchill. I need okay. to hear this theory. Okay. Uh, so, there are a few things. So, in any version of Emma, one of the funnier like subplots of this is that there is a gothic romance happening in the background of Emma that nobody is aware of. Uh, that everyone has all this curiosity about Frank Churchill. Everyone's curious about what's going on with Jane Fairfax's life when she comes into town. Nobody puts together that these two actually are connected in any way. Uh, or that there's this entire like game they've been playing for years of carrying on a relationship without anybody having any idea that it exists while Frank is just waiting for his aunt to die so he can inherit. And his aunt is a vicious and controlling person by all accounts who, if he marries someone of no consequence, unworthy to be a Churchill, he will be disinherited. Uh, and effectively mm-hmm. by his lights, like left with nothing, uh, certainly left with nothing for having been their effectively son for most of his life. Uh, all of that will be taken away basically out of pure spite. Now, in other stories, she's always sickly. And one of the things he uses an excuse to, uh, you know, be consumed by family stuff is that uh, his hypochondriac uh, aunt 
is having another crisis that she's sort of using to control him. But here we get those same allusions to the fact that like, Oh, is she, is she really sick? She's having, she's having seizures. Uh, and when it comes time when when we learn that she finally dies, Frank Weston even remarks that, you know, I never really even knew she was sick. Like I always thought you know, she was always like, you know, kind of in her head about her health, but I never actually thought there's anything wrong with her. Guess I was wrong. Uh, weird. Like she, she just, she dies really suddenly, but as far as anyone else really has known, they kind of figured she was in okay health. Uh, the other thing is there's this escalating weird energy around Frank Churchill as the story goes on that begins to consume, uh, Miss Fairfax and their behavior gets increasingly heated and inconsistent and slightly, uh, you know, right before the picnic at Box Hill, Frank Churchill seems really off. Uh, not just not, like not just kind of an asshole. He's kind of a, been a selfish, smarmy asshole throughout the story. But by that point, he is cruel. He is saying weird shit like, "I just I hate England. I want to get out of this country. I never want to be here. I never want to see anyone, any of these people again." Uh, he's getting like he is spiraling, and he is about to crack. So is Miss Fairfax. But what like what is driving them so crazy? Like what is what are is it just that they that the double game they're they're performing it has become too much for them? Is it the fact that uh, not being like continuing to pretend they don't have this connection is causing them to crack under the strain of having to perform? That's mm-hmm. kind of the argument the 2006 version does because the way Frank distracts from signs that he is connected to Miss Fairfax is by being an asshole to her. That happens less in this one though. And the energy is much more that of double indemnity where there is a conspiracy that they just need to hold it together for a little bit longer Uh and see this thing through to the end. And then they're going to be fine. Uh, And that is my read. (laughs) Like this version is Frank Churchill is a guy who is arranging to have all his problems solved in one go and everyone just needs to keep it together through this, through this spring and he'll be golden. Uh, you are not alone in this theory. (laughs) Okay. Oh my God. I want to shout out Leland Monk who wrote in 1990 for the journal of narrative technique murder. She wrote the mystery of Jane Austen's Emma in which Leland makes this exact argument. Uh, I don't have the full PDF because JSTOR is like that. Uh, it's very important that this uh, 30-year-old piece of literary criticism that the author was never paid for and won't be paid for Thanks, if I J-Store. give JSTOR money uh, be locked up uh, behind $8 or a $20 subscription. Um, the um, I'm pretty sure I still got my school account. I could get that for you. Yeah, yo, give me that, give me that me JSTOR that. login. Um, yeah. <laughs> fuck JSTOR for a lot of reasons we do not have time yeah, yeah. to get into today. Um, mm-hmm. Just trust us on it. Um, mm-hmm. makes that same, makes that same, uh, like makes this exact same, um, uh, case basically, Rob. That's incredible. So wow. I'll have to get this actual yes. thing. Part of That's the, fucking good. part of the case that, that, uh, that Monk makes or starts to make is that there's a side of Austin herself that we don't often talk about, um, which is that in her, so in Emma, one of the things that does not come up in this film 
is um, a a sort of literary game called charades, called charades, um, which is a word guessing game. Um, this did show up in the two thousand the 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 Romola Gay or Romola Gray um, uh, John Lee Miller version because it's part of how how Emma maybe it does come up in this version how Emma strings Harry along into thinking that she has a chance um, uh, with uh, what's his name with with Elton. Um, is that she gets a letter from him and uh, Emma reads the letter as if it's a game, as if it's a puzzle, and is right. like, mm, what, "What could this mean? Oh, could this could this be referring to Neptune in his in his sea kingdom? How could we how could we interpret this?" And this was like a popular thing um, uh, uh, for for people to do at the time in with literary charades. It was like a riddle, and this is the, the one that the, this essay opens with is from uh, Jane Austen, which says. Um, when my first is a task to a young girl of spirit, and my second confines her to finish the piece, how hard is her fate, but how great is her merit, if by taking my whole, she affects her release. Um, and this is, uh, the, the, the riddle here is like, there's a word to solve from that. And so the answer to this is, when my first task, when my first, my first part, when my first is a task to a young girl of spirit, which is hemming, hem, to hem something, and my second confines her to finish her piece, a lock, she's locked in the room, hemming, how hard is oh, her Lord. fate, but how great is her merit if by taking my whole hemlock, she affects her release. So here is, here is Jane Austen <laughs> writing about, about a, a, a young girl's suicide to escape confinement, uh, it is not like she doesn't have it in her, uh, is kind of mm. part of what this, this literary critic is, is arguing. Um, and huh. also this is the sort of awareness of those relations and the sort of like, um, we have contextual, we have forgotten that this is part of who Jane Austen is. And if we go back and reread her works with this in mind, you actually start to see that things like Emma can be read like like mystery like mystery novels effectively, um, sometimes not with the panache of like a de facto detective story because you know Poirot is not going to come in and crack this thing open for us. <laughs> but the puzzle is there all along in a sense. Um, uh, that is that is at least what I'm what I'm gleaning from reading the abstract, the first page, and then a student's shoutouts also to whoever wrote this uh, summary of this piece for their their English 2 class. <laughs> Shoutouts. Shoutouts to this person. I don't have it. There's no title on this page, but trust me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, people should look that up, I guess. Rob, you're not alone. I like this argument. This is a good argument. Yeah. I believe he's capable. I, I believe it. I also do. I think this one is like I'm not like other versions. I'm not saying in every version Frank Churchill's definitely a murderer, though there, there's that possibility. See, yeah. but I think in this, this one, one for sure, there's yeah. there's weird observations made around this entire thing, and then we never really see the reunion. Like yeah. someone that yeah, someone that worked on this film took a class on Emma uh, yeah, in college uh -huh. <laughs> read this. and was looking for research material uh -huh. on JSTOR and found this theory and was like, yes, this is, I'm in 10 years, I'm going to make this fucking movie because this is it. This is it. This is my twist. <laughs> um, yeah, incredible. Uh, the, can we talk briefly about um, uh, the, the, 
God, I, we should just get to the middle of this because it, it all comes together here to some degree. Um, uh, I, I was I was looking to talk about Jane Fairfax, but we should just get to Jane Fairfax directly, I guess. Yeah, I'm down after after Elton completely screws the pooch at uh, the Christmas dinner. Yeah. And reveals himself to be a real creeper mm-hmm. and also just beneath contempt. Right. Like Emma cuts him down to size and he throws his little tantrum um, and <laughs> screeches at the driver to let him out of the oh carriage. Oh, God. I forgot uh, about um, that moment. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. It's it's real good um, as she just creates that social distance of like. Uh, how dare you even consider yourself on yourself as, as on my level uh, and just waits for him to just get the fuck out of, of her sight. And then he vanishes like she she corn cobs him so completely uh, that he disappears from the story for like a season. Yeah. So powerful. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just he's just yeah. he's banished just from the eviscerates Phantom Zone. him yeah. from the story. If you told me like... he had like if you told me he had scheduling complications because he was on another shoot, I would believe you. <laughs> like that's how gone he is. Yeah. 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 Just like ejected from that carriage and out of the picture uh, <laughs> for a significant portion of the story. Uh, and then yeah, we get Jane Fairfax coming into town. Uh to spend time with her aunt, uh, Miss Bates, and uh, Miss Bates' mother, uh, who's a very elderly and infirm uh, woman. But we get Jane Fairfax arriving in town, and there is... Here we see Emma with somebody who maybe more than anyone in the story has a credible argument to be some kind of peer. Yeah. And or or equivalent at least. And it is a revealing dynamic. Um she is she is everything in a sense that Emma is not and also everything that uh Frank Churchill is not in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um which makes the inevitable reveal of their pairing uh kind of striking because it it makes me wonder to what degree she had always been it made me. Th- it makes me think to what degree is Frank Churchill at Wickham more than yeah. anything else? Yeah, um, that's. I kind of came to that like ooh, that yeah. resolution sat really weird with me oh, yeah. because Jane felt like a good person. Yeah, she's fine. She's living mm-hmm. her life. She got caught up in some shit. She's in love with this dude. This dude wants her family. Wants to be in her. I mean, as a. Frank Churchill has money. Does does do the Fairfaxes have more? Is there a play here? No. There, yeah. Is that so? Because so she's just, a governess. Oh, you're right. You're right. So then, what? Yeah. The no, fuck? she was off with this uh, military family, like basically right. being in a pair. Right. Sorry. It's uh, mi- it's Miss Churchill. It's his grandmother who will not let the the yeah right right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he is very Wickham like that. Shit, I hadn't even really thought about that because he's he's exactly like Wickham. If there'd never been a Fitzwilliam Darcy in the picture to be the actual son. Right, and so he is very much someone who was like pretty much adopted. He he was adopted into the family, and he is just got to like he's going to see this thing through because he's going to basically like own half of Yorkshire by the end of it. Right. Well, and Jane is just an incredible, like deeply talented. She becomes the object of Emma's ire by her by her presence and competence but not by her action in any way and also the reason yeah. I say she's the opposite of Churchill in some ways is she is here staying in conditions that are not 
uh, particularly fancy, let's say. Um, she seems to be content with the fact that her family is not necessarily um, of high standing in the way that the Churchills or the the Woodhouses are, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And that doesn't prevent her from being a like an incredible party guest, an entertainer, someone who can converse, someone who can kind of catch everyone's eye. Um, but neither does she make it like part of her identity in a in a core way. She isn't like wearing it as a badge of honor that, you know, the family that obviously she she when she was raised, I think she was probably in different circumstances, but that like Miss Bates is effectively the like the archetypical spinster at this point, right? Um, happy to live there, or maybe not happy to live there, but is live is living <laughs> there. <laughs> um, uh, and I, it, yeah. it always feels so tragic the way to which Emma, in seeing her as a rival, pushes away someone who could have otherwise been uh, a, a real, an actual real friend for whom will continue to be in the same circles for the rest of her life if things won't shake out a little differently. Yeah, completely. I mean, J- Jane just feels so authentically herself without putting on any type of performance or like the way that she interacts with other people just feels so natural and not like even if she's like abiding by social conventions like it just like I don't know it just she feels like a like a person she's not like some whereas like Emma and and fucking what's his name the the priest and elton, yeah. yeah elton there like there there is a quality to them that feels like a caricature of like there's just so over the top sometimes that it's like you're you're not real like you are mm-hmm. just you are very much a character in the story whereas jane is just kind of minding her own business and like doing her thing and moving about in the way that she can and that really worries me because Frank Churchill it like adds such a sinister sad light to their inevitable their like eventual uh elopement um she she genuinely seems like a good person and people echo that like people isn't it said in the movie by Knightley that like why are you so cruel to Jane or something like you could have been friends or like you, you you guys would have been friends in another life or whatever when they're doing the piano scene. He does, but she also does give some explanation of why that didn't work out. And part of it was there were always older parental figures around who were saying, oh, you guys should be friends. Yeah. But also always yeah. doing that thing that like people do, which is compare kids. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the thing is that, Jane, a lot of things have come. Not we don't know how easily they came to Jane, but Jane had the knack to develop a lot of these talents and skills and the drive to put effort into them to developing like her craft. That's not Emma. And that's not necessarily a failing of Emma, but it's just not who she is. And also she never she never depended on having to master these skills, much less teach them, which is very much how Jane was brought up. Like Jane knew that like some point she was going to have to master these skills because her best bet was to become a teacher of some sort. That was her, that was her path to independence such as, you know, such as it is uh, in this period. But for kids, I think it's very much a case where Emma 
sees this other child that she's always compared to and the comparison never feels flattering. And I can absolutely see, you know, as somebody who did music lessons on and off, like for years, one of the things I always hated about it was there are always people who you knew had the stuff to be musicians. I was not one of them. But you couldn't just enjoy your fucking music, right? You couldn't just do it. It was always, ah, but, you know, you should work harder because listen, look at how good that other that other child is. And that can make you feel really insecure and resentful, even if that, that person isn't doing anything. Jane's not yeah, doing anything. Totally. She's, good, she's good at it. I think the other part of this, though, is um, Emma is very much an Asuka-type character. Um, attention equals <sighs> affection and also just reality, like existence, right? Like, if... I am not being paid attention to in some weird way. Mm. I cease to exist. That is Emma. The irony of that is she lives in a household in which she feels trapped because someone demands that she exists to be given attention to because no one else will exist around him. Again, this stuff just scaffolds in really, really clever ways, which I think is mm -hmm. part of why the story is, is, is so um, enduring, you know? Yeah. But when, but when Jane shows up, she gets attention yeah. and she gets attention from Knightley, who is just being a nice guy, right? Like mm -hmm. basically he's being welcoming and a good host and welcome to our community. But in Emma's worldview, if people are not paying attention to me, I begin to vanish. You know, yeah. that, that that is very much how that is very much how I read her fear is that she feels like she could very easily become kind of a ghost in her own life. Um, and it's only the attention paid to her that prevents that from happening. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's a very, very apt read. It's like, it makes Emma, it makes me want to feel bad for Emma, but Emma's very soon going to make me not feel bad for <laughs> about her at fucking all. <laughs> yeah. Um, but first... But first, the dance. Uh, well, I guess we have Frank Churchill showing up, but we kind of covered him. Yeah, like I think is, we got him. Yeah. He's very polished um, and utterly shallow, right? He yeah. very much seems like uh, the veneer of a proper gentleman atop some sort of shrieking void is how he feels. Um, and we get the arrangement of a country dance uh, and this sets up sort of a scene that is always brought into this adaptation, which is uh, a dance at which Harriet is pretty meanly snubbed by the now returned Mr. Elton uh, with his pretty horrendous new wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> who she, is just a piece of work. Oh yeah. yeah. She oh, yeah. is so, and so, X, like every almost every I can't think of a performance in this film that like lacks like falls to the background or feels like lackluster like her performance of of the new Mrs. Uh, Elton is so just oh she is just the worst she sucks and it's just it's Perfect it's like hair. something to laugh at yeah her hair it's like yeah it's, oh my god <laughs> oh i forgot yeah god it's 
by the end of this movie, like she is so much that by the end, it almost seems like she's brought out a slightly better version of Elton because by the end of this movie, he is starting to realize that she is so inappropriate and she is such an asshole. There's a few scenes where he is like trying to tamp it down, Mm -hmm. right? There's a few scenes where he's kind of like, oh, geez, we can just, we could chill. We could chill a little more, Uh, (laughs) you know, by the end when he gives his uh, homily to lead off the, uh, wedding of Emma and Knightley, there's kind of no sign of the really pompous uh, theatrical version of Elton that we saw give the same uh, homily at the start of the film. And some of this is, this is a dude who now finds himself in the position of having an embarrassing connection. That The embarrassing connection that he thought Harriet represented uh, is now very much the person he, he married. Um, but... We get the we get the snub of Harriet, and then we also get the uh, the first dance between Emma and Knightley, and this film. Uh, I would say this is the this is this is a film that I would like very much is interested in sort of the actual like physical desire these characters have for each other. Uh, in a way that a lot of Austin adaptations are not. Rob, just read the words you wrote. The relative the horniness. relative horniness of this Austin adaptation. Because <laughs> I think it. <laughs> yeah. Because I think it is. Oh my god! Relatively. I thought you said homeiness. No horniness. No, it's horniness. That's just bad. Kerning. I'm too zoomed out. I need to zoom in. You got to zoom I in. Put those glasses on. R and that N. Yeah. yeah. I have glasses. <laughs> you need new ones. Zoom them up. New glasses. Because. You can't get my exam right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hope these don't break. Um, this was so horny. I was dying, we dying. in the theater. <laughs> we were dying. Was, this is like the most horny dance scene in any adaptation I've ever seen. Uh-huh. What is the horniest thing about it? Uh, I don't know. The fact that everyone is just so, like, touch-starved uh-huh. that, yes. like... Yes. Yeah. The the simplest. Well, they don't even touch like, in moments. It's their hands coming very close with that one yeah. mo- that one maneuver that is like the yep. reach up maneuver and or yeah or the crossover where it's like oh yeah my hand is almost touching your hand but not really. Where you can Whoa, feel the it. air in between. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh huh. Um. Or like Ooh. yeah, the reach behind the back. Oh, uh, love it. It's extremely I'm good. The video. It's extremely the, good. Uh, and it comes after it comes after a whole big dance number. So the the I think that this scene is stronger than the original, uh, or not the original, than the than the two, the, the two thousand one that I that I like yeah. that I might like that miniseries more than this film. Um, and they both do something right with the dance with the dance sequence, which is um, it makes it really clear why this is a big deal for the reason that Natalie said. It's like, everyone is yeah. touch-starved. And also, it's just different. It's just anything. It's a thing that exists. Like, we are two weeks away uh, for those of us who are stuck in our homes right now. And and, uh, and honestly, <laughs> but, for, the, yeah. for those of us who are working essential jobs but don't get to go hang out and go do anything, yeah. we're going to have one of these balls and no one's going to touch anyone and it's going to be the best night it's any of us have had. Lit. <laughs> Our social distancing dance ball is going to be wild. Um, and I think... Both versions of the film or both versions of the story that I've seen hit that part really well. And it's like, whoa, this is a big deal for that reason. And and I think that the that the Johnny Lee Miller, Miller version did a good job of communicating that uh, uh, hey, this is a style of intimacy that uh, is acceptable in public in a way that mm-hmm. you can have 
you can you can start to walk down that path a little bit, um, and you can really feel even in that version how intense it is. This version's horniness quotient is extremely high. The the Emma Horny index through the roof right now. Uh, it blows that it blows that sequence out of the water from from the John Lee Miller version, and I think it's so much is is uh, because. Um, of of the incredible performances, like they sell, they sell their their feelings so hard. Uh, <laughs> it is hard not to be pulled in. Um, it's also some really good editing, though, too, where like the tight shot yes. on the hand on her hip, uh, is like it is such a tight shot that your awareness becomes entirely consumed by. They're two hands on her side mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the intimacy of that moment and how unexpected it is, like to the point where you can almost feel like how much that it would feel like that, like that skin is almost burning mm-hmm. right from your focus mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. Like the filmmaking makes it real and like it feel like in that moment, it feels very much like a middle school dance yes. in some ways in terms of its sudden like, holy shit, like I'm I'm touching a, a, another person in yeah. this way. That, uh, that shot comes right at the end. They're holding for a second and then as mm-hmm. people start to like let go, you see her grab it, hold his hand a little, mm-hmm. like give it a squeeze as he's pulling Oh, it's away. so good. Yeah. It's so fucking good. There's also the bit I where also- they fuck up and like they have to like yes. fall out of step. Yes. Like, oh shit. Oh, this is a thing. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Natalie, what were you going to say? I also love, I have found this interview that Refinery29 did with DeWild um, about this scene specifically. And uh, the fact that she has uh, bare hands for this mm. is like s- s- very significant because there's really no reason why she would have bare hands. Like this dance would have been a gloved dance but everyone else is gloved yeah, yeah everyone else is line. gloved and emma's hands are bare and the huh. reason why is and i'm quoting um dewild says i'd like her to have bare hands uh she's talking to her etiquette expert and the etiquette expert says okay we can do that because she could have like just eaten and if she just ate she would have had to have taken off her gloves and maybe when they're talking she hasn't put them back on yet and then she can dance with her gloves off. So it's like this happened, this happenstance, right. uh, 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 sequence of events where bef- earlier in the, in the interview, DeWild talks about being obsessed with the building blocks of a romantic moment where you're talking about like, I saw him from across the room and then I looked away and he looked at me and like everything outside of physical contact that makes like a romantic moment feel so, charged and um and like uh uh, where like it feels like stars are aligning and it's like the idea that she would have just happened to not have her gloves on in that moment Mm -hmm. and just like just happened like those are all little building blocks to this like crescendo of like the dance itself that is done so well it's like it's such a great uh detail Mm mm-hmm well, and I think they establish uh, this is again a, a smart piece of storytelling here. There are, ver- there are ways to tell this story where this begins to maybe like awaken them to the possibility of a relationship, yes. but then it yes. takes till the end where it's like, ah, like we should get married. And that can feel a little bit like kind of elite from where, like, okay, so in the context of him admonishing her, like they fell in love, that can be a weird dynamic. Here, 
by the end of this dance, both these characters like, you know, it would be great. Uh huh. Would be boning down. Yeah. Like, let's just <laughs> let's like, just go. Let's get the fuck out of. Let's, I've been on this bus ride. Let's get out of this club. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is and I've left this this uh, student council meeting in grad school and gotten on that bus before. I'm like, what are we doing? Yeah, we gotta yeah. go wow. right now. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> to the point where like he almost gets to her in the carriage, but then she rides off. So he runs home. And there's a bit of like uh, hand wavy editing. He basically runs oh, yeah. home. Yes, and like a night passes because it's now the next day. Where he's sort of racing over to her house to confess his feelings. And she is waiting in her window, like she's been listless the entire night, waiting in the window, sees him coming, is rushing to meet him, and then Harriet fucks it all up. <laughs> by having the by having the sheer indecency and selfishness. To get mugged by a bunch of people that she just concludes, sight unseen, must have been gypsies. I cannot believe she, okay, if I can pause for a second, they uh could have, they could have not used the, that word. Uh Uh-huh. In this remake, why? Uh-huh. Of all of the things that you could have changed, I get it that Harriet probably <laughs> would have used that word, uh, mm-hmm. but we didn't, she, mm, there's other words that are there, not yeah. slurs. Uh and also the other half of the thing that that she ruins here, of course, is that she falls in love with him. Right? That she she ha- has decided that the dance was the moment. I guess you, as the viewer, aren't supposed to understand that that's what she means yet, though, right? Natalie, no, you were right. the first no, time watching. You thought she's it was literally showing Churchill. up in Frank Churchill's arms, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a look though, and maybe this only came up in the re- in my recent viewing because I had this is this is the second time I was watching yeah. it, yeah. but like. When he comes up to her and to kind of like look her over, basically, like, like, are you okay? What's happening? Like, you can see yeah. it on her face of like, oh my god, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I no, no, no. It's I feel like it's very clear that it's like born out of this moment with. It's like I feel like it's clear to everyone except except Emma or except Emma. except Emma. Right. right. Okay. Right? Okay. Like. Because it, it's like you can tell how elated she is yeah. by this, uh, um, and it and it especially because she had been snubbed, especially because it felt like he had come to her rescue of sorts, and knowing Emma, knowing all of the weird, like. Uh, uh, courting strategy she may have been telling Harriet about and like, oh, yes, this is how gentlemen do it. This is like, this is what we expect of the men who court us or whatever. (laughs) I could totally see a world in which this act has already been defined by Emma and like the social context as being like a romantic gesture where Harriet would be led to believe that, you know, this might mean something. Um, and then it doesn't help that Emma and uh, Harriet have that com- have that like miscommunication conversation. Obviously, yeah, yeah, God. no, it, it does. Oh. Yeah, like Emma's done a tremendous job of really priming the pump uh, for <laughs> this uh, misinterpretation on Harriet's yeah. part, and also like 
Yeah, I mean, she she has definitely sort of been creating this image of like, here's you know, here's what a proper gentleman looks like, and the problem is like. The person Emma is describing when she's talking about what a genteel person is like, what a genteel man is like, is nightly, right? Because like she lives in a society of like five people. Like, yeah, like her, right, her picture right. of a eligible proper gentleman is literally nightly, and so it's no surprise that Harriet would get that uh, confused as well. Um, but yeah, and the entire thing just falls the fuck apart. Uh, it's a, it's a disaster because. Like Emma and Knightley end up in a weird place and they're not sure how to navigate this. And they're, they kind of both feel caught or implicated. It like the whole thing has a weird unsettled vibe and, uh, it basically waves off the entire confession of feelings and affection that was imminent and puts their relationship on hold while, Nightly, now the heat of the moment has passed, needs to think about this. And that gives Emma space to really get in her head about uh, whether Nightly's even, whether she read any of that correctly at all. Right. And into this, with feelings at their most intense, <sighs> we get the picnic at Box Hill. <sighs> so, we haven't talked much about Miss Bates here. Um, and... This version of Miss Bates is very funny, uh, I, I, I would say. Um, and also very much like you totally understand why Emma kind of can't stand this person. Uh, but I think the thing that uh, Miranda Hart does playing Miss Bates, and also it's some of the way she's written as well, is that Miss Bates is just completely scatterbrained. It's not yeah. just that she's mm -hmm. tedious. It's that she literally, like, there's a scene in the shop where she literally misplaces a letter that she was holding 30 seconds earlier. She is extremely uh, ADHD in some ways and is also very nervous and is often in the position of sort of just filling space in a conversation as she tries to remember where she was going with this or what was the point of this. And Miss Bates is a character that. What makes her tedious is obvious, but also the things that drive it are equally obvious to us as a spectator, right? That, like, Miss Bates can be a lot, but she's also very sweet and harmless. But after 20 years of dealing with this, Emma's just kind of out of patience for it, and she's now at her worst. Yeah. And so they go to the hill, which sounds like a fun thing to do. I'd love for all of us to go to a picnic on a hill right now. Maybe not right now. It's a little windy, a little cold. <laughs> um, but this spring, if we could all just get... No, we're not all... Okay, still can't do um, that. No, no. I'm, I'm, oh, no. No, we can't. See, we can have a digital picnic, just but that's make it. a hexagon um, of, like, people 10 feet away from each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I... I actually do want to emphasize that like part of the thing that's always so interesting to me about the scene is that it is the equivalent of like going to the Poconos or something for these people. Not maybe not that because it's a, it's a single day trip, but it's like, we're going to go to the fucking hill. We're going to go see like from the top of a hill. That's so sick. Like that it's is like going to central park from Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is actually like that. And well, it's like, it's like more than that because what it's if like going you, to Bear Mountain, maybe. Yeah. It, it's like very much like you don't get to do anything ever. And so yeah. this is like a uh, this is like a damn good outing. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I also have always loved, and I think it's just that this version of it does it so well, the um, the awkwardness of the group who goes, the tension yes. of it, who are being held together by the same tension that makes the that makes them tense. It's like there is surface tension that holds them together because they are these are the characters that should be together. Here's mm-hmm. here are the young couples. Here are the couples that no one's supposed to know about yet. Here are the couples that haven't formed yet. Here are the groups that here are the people who think that they're potentially in a couple but are not. <laughs> um, and also Mrs. Ba- and also Miss Bates is there. Mrs. Bates is there also. Um, and that that like four groups of four like distinct groups of friends that have an overlap but that overlap is really not very secure deciding to go do something disastrous has like my favorite energy in the world because <laughs> i've lived through it so many times um and it's captured really well here and the entire i think that the film does such a good job of building the the kind of train wreck energy of this sequence well- and Frank Churchill is a conversational terrorist. What a nightmare person. Oh, yes. Fuck oh. him. Like, to a degree, Emma doesn't do anything to get this rolling. No. No, no, like, no. She was no. just yes. sitting there. Yes. And Frank Churchill's like, there's a lot of gasoline spread around here. Yeah. <laughs> Let's fucking light. I'm going to start striking some matches. <laughs> we should start throwing like matches at each other. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's, it's yeah. They but they they do feed like she she is feeding off the attention he's giving her like him talking to the whole group for her and stuff like it like makes her it singles her out in a way that makes and especially in the presence yeah. of Jane Fairfax right. is like it feels like you can tell that she's like I don't know. Wait, is Jane there? I thought yeah. she had left. Yeah. No, Jane is Jane, there. This whole Jane sequence. She left the day before at Dunwell Abbey. This whole sequence is a nightmare because it, it's it's Churchill, it's Frank Churchill, uh, like just making his fiance feel like shit as he whispers. He's such a Wickham. He's, he's such a Wickham. Mm-hmm. It's so fucked up. He's such like it's so it's actually worse because Wickham would commit to a target and at least be like, <laughs> now I'm going to woo this person. Like yeah. The, this I, is it. Just this one. This I'm is, in one yes, lane. Yes, and then he would jump from if that I'm relationship. I'm going to switch lanes. I'm not going to be exactly. in both lanes at the same time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Churchill is like in the Wick ears in the the Fairfax lane to the degree that, as Rob suggests, he may be killing his own grandmother so that he can marry her. Um, but but at the same time, he's just having a little fun getting under everybody's yeah. skin by by playing with the affections of of Emma and like specifically, what a disrespectful thing to do. Like it isn't keeping up illusions. There's no reason. There's no justification. That's, that's absolutely what he would say, though, right? Of course, like, oh, but he's just, a troll. You know. He's being <laughs> yeah, such yeah, a troll. Yeah. He's a little troll exactly. under a bridge. He's a little mm-hmm. troll under a bridge. But I think this is like this is why he's such a gothic character, mm-hmm. though. Like this is you have to like my read on this guy is somewhat involuntarily to an extent. He was volunteered to this wealthy family that has clearly used money to control. Yeah. And in the process of that, he has learned to dissemble, uh, and it is now a way of life. And what does what happens to somebody after 15, 20 years of just constant like putting on the mask yeah. and performing? Uh, at this point, he is kind of, like he comes across like a monstrous character because now at this point, this is instinctive for him. 
uh, playing a role, like playing with affections, like projecting one thing, doing another. This is just what he does now as an instinct, and he almost can't help himself. And that's what kind of makes, like, that's why this Frank Churchill scares me and why I think he might be a killer, because there is this, like, there is this weird quality to this, the sheer needlessness of this cruelty and the almost, like, maniacal way that he goes about sabotaging this this entire sequence and make multiple people feel like shit yeah. uh, just just makes me feel really uneasy about the guy. Yeah, he has bad energy. Bad fucking energy. He's just, <laughs> it's, because this is mean-spirited. Yeah. This is just, this is so mean. This is like a, he knows. He is, has, yeah. he knows his, situation and hey. is deliberately being a fucking shithead well and also just all like hey uh just what's on everyone's mind i noticed there's a weird vibe uh <laughs> everyone just has to say what's on their mind let's He's let's really get into this worst oh. i hate this person i oh, never yeah. I, I couldn't be caught dead being friends with this person oh. fuck this guy if you have a friend like this he not your get friend him out your life. not your friend get <laughs> him right. out of you don't need that shit you absolutely do not he and- sucks and then Miss Bates starts playing into it. She starts saying, "Ah, you know, no. I could I could win the game where I could say three very dull things indeed." And you see, at like mm-hmm. sometimes someone says something, and it's just a big slow meatball of a of a uh, of a pitch across home plate. Right? It's it just, happens to all of us. It's it's coming straight down, uh-huh. and you could you can you could just. So easily knock this thing out of the park. You have the perfect thing to say. They've set themselves up so perfectly. <laughs> Do they deserve it? No, but it's just so funny. It'd be so funny to just say this. <laughs> We're all thinking it. We've all felt it at some point. Like, just just say it. And it would be funny and better than whatever conversational hell Frank Churchill has driven us into the middle uh-huh. of. <laughs> yeah. Better to and blow so it I all up. So- yeah. yeah, I have some sympathy for why Emma, like, despite on some level knowing she needs to not say this, why she just decides to commit and say, well, in your case, you'd be at a disadvantage because you'd be limited to just three very dull things. Uh, so fucked up. So but fucked I don't up. read it as, I I read it as like, I mean, it's definitely her being, it, it felt like a result of this weird antagonistic uh uh tone that Churchill that Frank was setting up where she like wanted to rise to that as well and like play and like play on the same field or whatever and like go tit for tat mm-hmm. in that little exchange where she just like wanted to show like the uh the 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 practice of her the craft of her wit and like, just, just fucking, just smack that ball into the fucking subway station behind Yankee Stadium. Just it smashes through the the. It's it's just it's so mean. It's such a mean thing to say. Why would you say such a mean thing? Well, and then and then it was already gonna like linger there. Like, oh, that was a bit much. But then it's never occurred to Miss Bates that she comes across this way. Not really. Like, she never no. felt that people... like, And so you just get the knife twisting, which is Miss Bates. This hits her so hard as she oh. as she realizes, like, oh, my God, I'm just terrible. 
Or maybe she does. Maybe that's like her insecurity that has finally, like, been. It's like the thing that's never been said out loud has finally been said out loud, and maybe she has been aware. I mean, she, like, I, I think, think she there has must a little be because it. It's what she says, right? Like that's what leads that the setup. The setup is, is her. Already, she sets herself up, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. She says herself like. Oh, three dull things. I can do that. Like, because the other options are two interesting, one really interesting thing or two mediumly interesting things or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. But this was like, oh, I've already She's picked already, myself, yeah. but Emma's so coming in with a fucking together. hammer yeah. to like yeah. yep. <laughs> fucking, yep. you know, nail it all the way in. It sucks. It's, it's bad. And oh. it completely, like, the entire afternoon implodes how did, immediately. How did y'all's theater respond to this? Wait. Uh didn't play well. Uh Mina was very distressed. <laughs> uh MK uh winced. I was I was shocked. Um It was just Go ahead. No, I was, I was just yeah, I was like there was a an audible gasp from everyone and it was very good. It was just like fuck. How can you yeah. do her like that? Yeah, she's yeah, that's about right. I think it's been a, it's been a month, but I think that that was yeah. about where ours was at. Yeah, Presumably the same type of folks. It was still the Alamo, we, right. you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We were there opening day. These were These, the M yeah, stands they, came, they out. came out. Uh-huh. There were a yeah. lot of people there. Yeah. yeah. God. Every season. Hashtag filled. Emma is over. They, they know how it's gonna go down at Box Hill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they were ready. They had popcorn right. out, ready to go yeah. on that Box Hill scene. I did not. It was like I think I said like what I just said shut the uh, fuck up or something. I don't know. I was pissed <laughs> off in the back row. I was badly like, done indeed. Badly done indeed. So fuck yeah. and the they they hold on fucking Emma's face too. Yeah. Which was so like it was you can see her realize that yeah. she fucked up so hard. Oh, fucking but then there's no way back from it. No, she just it's too commits late. to the mask of like, I meant to do that. God. <laughs> yeah, the way that she like doubles down as like a mode of self-preservation is bad. It's like it's just and and everyone and everyone abandons her. Everyone gets up. They take a walk. They she's left alone, which is the exact thing that she was so afraid of mm-hmm. the whole time. And it's just been it is of her own doing. It is because the things that she wanted were to 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 impress Frank Churchill and to and to really snide Jane Fairfax and and you know everything that she wanted has led her to this moment everything all of her actions she's she she shit the bed totally the which is exactly what nightly says oh 100 percent. and i think you shit the bed emma. you shit the shit the bed <laughs> shit, <laughs> shit, shit, you shit the bed emma um the way that, that scene plays out is one of the most distinct differences in terms of the characterizations of emma between this and the bbc series that that rob and i did an episode on last year um in the bbc series Emma is immediately uh, aware of the trouble she is in, in a sense. She, she, even as she tries to kind of push back a little bit, um, you know, there's kind of immediately tears in her eyes. Even as she, like, starts to shout back in one bit, like, she's always on the back foot. And I think that the, the power dynamic between 
uh, Ramola Garay's uh, Emma and Johnny Lee Miller's um, Mr. Knightley. And the age difference actually is like being leveraged here in a real way to which this is a lecture being given. Um, this is him slipping all the way back into mentor mode. This is this is him being direct in a way again that he hasn't been before, and it, it's still a fantastic scene. The the one with um uh what is his name Johnny Flynn does feel like she is refusing to give ground until the very last moment at which point he, when he walks away, right? Like I, he leaves and she breaks into tears, but that doesn't, Mm -hmm. you, he couldn't have seen those in her face because she holds them until he walks away. And that is like Uh such a distinct difference from the earlier version. I don't know how it was in the, the, the third version that I have not seen the 96 version, the Gwyneth Paltrow one, but uh, that difference is, is really distinct. And I think it, it does go back to speaking to, the difference in the way the the kind of way that Knightley is being presented in terms of age and and stuff like that. Um. Kato gifted the the moment of delivery oh, and no. just watching this over and it. over again is <laughs> no. so excruciating. Yeah. It's so oh, mean. The fact it's that it stays like, on her. It's, it's yeah. so sad. God. It stays on her and you see her like, oh, I, I fucked I up. I fucked up, I fucked man. up, I fucked up. But That's she's still rough. not even willing, she's still not willing to admit it in the face of Knightley's like reprimand, right? Like she's going to hold off because she doesn't want it from Knightley, but she knows deep down she fucked up. <laughs> oh, she knows. She and knows. once again, it's like, it's an invisible servant who sees it, right? She sort of yeah. screams, get me out, like, let's go. And like, you hear the... The, the whip crack yeah. and she's literally like yanked out of the scene. Like yeah. basically the carriage <laughs> gives her the hook. God. And she is pulled off box hill. Um, and we get probably the, the most artistic, like it's the one scene where Bill Nye, not playing for pure laughs, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. where she's sort of devastated and bereft at home. And we get the sense that he does not, and he never does know what to say. Um, and the most he can do is just sort of be there with her. And it's sweet, but it's also sad, right? Cause like he is a loving father and he's physically present, but at the same time, like kind of self-absorbed doesn't share in any of that life. And they don't have that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And so there is no way for him to understand what she's going through. And there is no way for her to open up about like, what has happened, like what has changed uh, in her life. Cause everything has changed, right? right? That's, that's the other part of this is from the start of the story to where we are right now, everything about her life is now in turmoil, even though superficially nothing's changed and her father can see that, but there's nothing either of them can really do about it. Mm-hmm. And bridge that gap. And it's a, it's a sweet and sad scene. Yeah. I don't have much to add there. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then we get... Uh, so here we have more direct portrayals of how Emma begins to try to make amends. Um, they sort of compress this a little bit where she, like in pretty much every other version of the story, Miss Bates evades her attempted apology. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miss Bates basically goes into hiding to avoid Emma. Here she doesn't. Uh, so Emma, we get, we get a very good shot of Emma going up the stairs to see Miss Bates. And it's the first time we realized like, oh, the Bateses yeah. live in a small apartment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know, they, they, like, this is going up to someone's tiny cramped, uh, one bedroom, uh, through 
you know, a, a sketchy stairwell. And that stair that stairway feels like a mile long as Emma tries to tries to get to that door. Uh, but then she does have a good conversation with Miss Bates that I think does lay out like these characters need to reaffirm they do care about each other. Um, and that is that is real. But Emma needs to own the fact that she was a pretty huge asshole. And I think that that's played pretty well here. Yeah. Um, and for storytelling purposes, pretty neat. Yeah, it wraps up very neatly, right? I mean, I, I think it it in the uh, it is hard to have an apology sequence where someone who is so much higher in the social food chain, so much yeah. more wealthy, like going to take take her knocks, but also it's the end of the film and we're twenty minutes out from wrapping up, and so we need to like give her her act of contrition very quickly which means that the reception of that apology either has to yeah. has to feel genuine um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and that's difficult in some yeah. ways right i feel like miss bates wouldn't really have the ability to like reject like <laughs> yeah. out of social conven- convention wouldn't really have the ability to reject this apology given the difference in in class and social status like the fact that that uh emma's even calling on her is a huge deal um and like in the way that it's read in this the way that it feels in this movie is like miss bates is just such a kind genuine person and does really care about emma that she's like willing to forgive and, you know, sees the best and always has seen the best in Emma and, you know, can write this off as a lapse of judgment or whatever. But it what Emma said was very cruel. And and it just it it does. It's a little too neat for me, but maybe that is that works in the favor here, given the difference in social standing. That's good. I, I'd be very curious what the version of Emma would look like where like Miss Bates doesn't accept the apology, yeah. right? Because I think that's where that's where the rubber really meets the road when it comes to privilege, right? It's very easy to say, ah, "I'm gonna, you know what? You're right. I did, uh, I did overstep. I am going to humble myself and apologize to you, uh, this person I've generally treated as my lesser." And yeah, in exchange for that, you're going to forgive me. Mm-hmm. But what if that deal doesn't get accepted? Yeah. That's when you really like. That's when you really see someone's character. Of okay, so are you going to continue to? Are you going to continue to take that out? Are you going to try harder to like get win, to win a to to demonstrate more authentic mm-hmm. and uh, comprehensive contrition and amends? Or are you now going to be offended and prideful? I could see if em- if that apology wasn't accepted, I could see Emma very quickly being like, "Well, hold on, fuck you." Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that then, I guess, isn't it? <laughs> see, see if I bring a grocery bag around here ever again. God. I had I had a thing of scallions and <laughs> half a loaf of bread in here for you, mm. God. asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that's a thing that. Uh, happens in the book right though the the food 
that's suppo- supposedly meant to kind of like make you more aware of her standing like earlier on yeah. is that she's always being given food by the other like the other families like yep. to kind of she's being supported basically by mm-hmm. a lot of the people in in this in this town um which, in that which context does, it feels even yeah that's what i'm saying worse. i don't know that oh, she yeah. can or does maybe I think I think Miss Bates has, gives off a lot of like I'm just happy to be here energy yeah. in a way 100%. where I don't know if I can ever really buy the apology as being a hundred percent like she's okay with this rather than she, this is the best option do? for her yeah. Uh-huh. yeah what are you gonna yeah, do yeah, it's like, the path it's like of least thank resistance. you for the food yeah I mean I guess because well, cool, what she says was because cool. here's here's the thing and I read this I I, I remember this because like I. The, what she says is, "You are always kind, yeah. Miss Woodhouse." Yeah, so very. Kind, you are always, always kind. So which kind. Uh, yeah. it feels like the uh-huh. only way that there's yeah. like a little bit of a pushback here mm-hmm. is like, yeah. Remember that time you weren't kind, mm-hmm. right? Like in the or, only way that yeah. that ba- Miss Bates could ever even deign to try to say such a thing, right? Or it's the other side of that, which is like you've always been so kind, where she feels like indebted to. Right. Emma in a way that like this feels so much more manipulative and that's what I was trying to get yeah. at with the social class thing which is like and it, I think it's it's a discredit to Miss Bates's character and I but it is one read of her where she's just like ha- it, it, she's happy to be here she's happy mm-hmm. that she that Emma would consider her a friend happy that Emma came to uh you know come apolo- to, to call on her and apologize and those kinds of things where you know, just their their friendship is it's like the kind of thing where like you're I'm your best friend, but you're not my best uh-huh. friend. Right. Yeah. It's like that. And that makes me really sad for Miss Bates because I think she deserves better than Emma's shitty friendship. Mm-hmm. Right. Um So in other versions, like the two big amends that Emma has to make, like things just work out for Emma, but like her apology to Miss Bates and other versions isn't really accepted, right? It's just a thing that Miss Bates gets over. Like mm-hmm. Emma moves past it and continues to try to be a better person. And with time that, that rift is healed. And the other big thing she's got to make right here. And this is where we get to it. Uh, Harriet confesses she has feelings. So it's revealed that Churchill was uh, engaged to Jane Fairfax. The whole time. Emma's like, holy shit, Harriet, I fucked up again. I got you all hung up on Frank Churchill. And Harriet's like, no, I, uh, Frank Churchill. I'm good on that, actually. Yeah, that guy seems like Uh, an asshole, actually. Yeah. (laughs) He seems like he killed his grandma, actually. Fucking made that read real quick. (laughs) (laughs) That dude's a murderer. He kills people. Yeah. Uh, so she's like, no, I, I'm in the nightly. That's who I'm, uh, that's who I've set my cap for. That's who we've been talking about. This whole time. Yeah, the whole time. And Emma does not conceal her shock well. And here we get Harriet immediately sees what the fuck just happened. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you think of him for yourself. Like, you don't actually, you want me to be happy, but not like, not a happiness you would have. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And like, gets to a really cruel truth about Emma. Like, Emma wants the best for Harriet, provided it's second best. And Harriet sees that. And Harriet also unloads with the fact that I only passed on Robert Martin, who I actually like loved 
because of you. Like all the shit that I've been through is because you decided to stick your oar in. And that friendship kind of explodes, um, you know, in that, in that moment. And this, this moment comes later, but it's the thing that Emma has to clean up, which is the fact that in a fit of insecurity, she fired torpedoes into Harriet's life into poor Robert Martin's life and his extended family who all seem to love Harriet. Like the emotional devastation she inflicted, on a pretty wide swath of people because she was worried her new bestie yeah. that she'd known for like a minute <laughs> might not be around is pretty shocking. And so the thing this this version does, that's not in other versions, other versions, Robert Martin just comes back around and makes a second appeal to Harriet and it all gets smoothed over. And that, that is the escape hatch from this, this terrible misunderstanding that lets it all pass. This version, I do like this. No, Emma's got to go eat that crow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Emma has to go make this right, not with, just with Harriet, but she has to go to Robert Martin and his family and explain what she did and get him to understand that, no, you were never rejected. Not really. It was on me. And I like this scene. I like that Robert Martin does not seem particularly impressed by Emma. Like he, he kind of knows, but this is a this is the reckoning that Emma's really needed to face, and I do like that that scene exists here. Yeah, and then yeah. and then you know the I think part of that also breaks down in the doing. She assures that she can actually keep Harriet in her life to some degree, um, in a way that w- that wouldn't have been the thing she was unwilling to do before was go talk to John Martin. At all. Robert Martin. I don't say right. his fucking name. Right. John, Jim. <laughs> John George. Uh, Jim John. Marty. Yeah. Jim Marty. John. Marty Martin. Sin. Uh, just goes, <laughs> goes, uh, because she has to go like, you know, kind of uh, kiss the ring a little bit. Uh, it actually potentially opens the door to to the chance that, that Harriet would stay in her life if we wanted to imagine the best possible version of this outcome, right. uh, which is which is a little bit of irony there uh, for sure. It's also cool to see his farm and to see his house and his and his like family, all of whom clearly love uh, Harriet. Um, the whole thing had is around like Harriet has made his life made his life better when she was around, and so that absence is actually pretty well felt, even though that's only a few throwaway lines. Um, it's clear that like the girls on the farm will be happy to have her around. Are they, are they Robert Martin's little sisters? I don't know what the situation is. Yeah. Well, don't they, don't they like, uh, uh, run into each other at the hat shop? Yes. There's like, we didn't talk about that scene, but there's like a whole, we didn't talk about the haberdashery at all. That place rules. What a great Yeah, The hat shop is (laughs) where it's at. Oh, those fashions. Goddamn. Incredible. Shit is popping off in the hat shop. They got two for ones. They got, it's, it's incredible. (laughs) That fucking two-tone, like, gold and black, like, starkly divided dress she wears with the, like, my God, like, they might be some sort of, like, rural pastoral backwater, but, man, that shop is... Got that drip. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. everyone fitted. (laughs) Yep. Um, But, but yeah, so, so what we missed is, is that uh, Harriet's absence is absolutely felt by Robert Martin and his family. Like you can tell that this rejection has like affected them. 
um, in a way that she felt very special to them specifically. And that there had been a relationship developed there. Like they got to know each other. His sisters knew her. Like this wasn't some secret romance. This was kind of out in the open um, in a way that everyone was on board with except Emma. Uh, Now the motivation for that final scene with visiting the Martins is of course that Knightley returns from his peregrinations while he figures out uh, how much he wants to jeopardize uh, the comfortable friendship he's got with Emma to sort of admit that he's in love with her. Uh, We get a scene that didn't do a lot for me until the turn. Uh, in terms of confessions of Knightley's love and all that, like, it's fine. I don't think it was particularly, like, it feels like a very boilerplate scene, which I think kind of becomes the point when we wait to see Emma's reaction. And there is no reaction until blood begins pouring from her face. It rules. <laughs> it's so, it's so good. Amazing. Uh, I will say I do like a bit of like, I mean, and like, you know, this gets played out a lot, but I, I did enjoy the, 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 the like difference between them being outside of under the branches. Yeah. Kind of like working around the weird, like half, like not saying the full thing, right? Like working in like the public sphere where you can't say the full thing to under the, the, the like kind of shielding of the tree when it's like actual confession time and then kind of back out when it's like oh shit i have to fix the kind of societal mess i've made before we can be we can have our like romance again so it's like this kind of in uh out in out movement through this scene really kind of plays up the kind of like different spheres that they're that they're all working in right and they're all terrified you're like he's worried that if he forges ahead with this and she doesn't want him to. It's going to screw things up between them. But she's worried. He's here to say that he's going to ask mm-hmm. for Harriet right. uh, to marry him. And they're both terrified of the different ways this conversation could go. And then no sooner has she realized that to an extent, like the thing she's been pining for here is coming true. Then the other problem comes crashing down, which is she fucked things up for Harriet yet again. But also she's not sure what to do about her father either um you know that becomes a thing that no sooner like before they can really even contemplate life as a couple she immediately asks to answer this question of well how does this change things uh for my father because i can't possibly leave him and this is resolved in uh sort of the, the penultimate scene which is returning to the fireplace uh drawing room where the where their relation where their relationship in this picture began, uh, we return to the bit about Mr. Woodhouse's obsession with drafts and mm-hmm. desire to be boxed in by screens, and this time the screens, of course, give them finally <sighs> uh, a bit of privacy in a domestic sphere uh, for the first time in the film. Um, Which I definitely read later. as Mr. as as her as, as Emma's dad doing on purpose. Oh right? yeah. Yeah, like this is, this is That's him this noticing is. Uh, some like <laughs> chemistry oh. happening that wasn't there before, maybe, and was like, "Yo, go sit over there. <laughs> just go, just go." <laughs> there are other rooms. It's a big house. It's I just very think funny. You probably have a thousand funny. rooms. Well, but it speaks to that that sort of that sort of like the the whole like yeah the 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 like structures of 
of society and the like things that are like pertinent to do or whatever, right? Like this is the way they could like walk around that and still have this conversation right there. Um, it seems like yeah, it seems like Mr. Woodhouse like Mr. Woodhouse doesn't really care. He's just like the the barriers and stuff is just a like a formality. Right. Really. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and like but yeah, it's very funny. It's you know, it's definitely doesn't seem like it would have happened. Like I can't imagine that actually <laughs> really going down. Uh in the way that like he seems so I don't know, like encouraging of it in a, in the way that in another situation it would have felt like he like an arranged sort of situation mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. instead he's recognizing that they already have a connection this is not like the a situation in which like two families are putting <sighs> forcing two people right. to come together or whatever um but it's like i see i want the best for my daughter they're horny yeah, they're let sharing just, looks. Let me share. <laughs> the, let me throw the this screen up. The equivalent of turning the rearview mirror, like yeah. to just face right, outside right. the car, <laughs> <laughs> closing the little, uh, closing the little taxi cab, like back there, the yeah. limousine back <laughs> connection thing. Allowing <laughs> your kid to have closed doors for the first wow. time, right? Sure. Like but I think that. that that is there is an element of that, yeah. right? Which yeah. which is that it's not appropriate for them to go sneak off in the evening to some other corner of the house, and so for this brief moment. Like, even though, you know, they're clearly committed to each other, that we, you know, he's just got to give them the privacy they're allowed at this juncture. Yeah. Um, and that's where they sort of settle on, is she going to leave uh, Hartfield? And the answer is no. Uh, he is happy to leave Dunwall Abbey and stay with her. Which doesn't surprise me because it does seem like, Everyone else seems surprised he would leave the Abbey, but nobody, like... But we don't see him there, ever. We don't see him, like, do... It's not... It's only prior to Box Hill right. that people come by and visit, and Emma goes to that same gallery, which right, for, right, right. like, the first yes. time maybe ever has the the statuary exposed. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I like that sequence. Um, That's yeah, a good sequence. But, but yeah, I, I... I Also, I think part of... I think this has always been the, the hardest, like, last-second conflict of Emma for me to pill to swallow, because, like... My dude, you have to get over it. Come over for dinner. Like, you live 12 <laughs> feet away. We'll come over here for dinner. Like, but I, it's, I get it. I get it. But it's it's harder. I think it's hard in this film because it's been mostly played for laughs that they would right. make such a dramatic decision about where they live. Um, yeah. I don't know. Also, yeah. I just can't imagine being like, I'm going to get married and move in with my parents or move, like move in with their parents, with my partner's <laughs> parents. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not. Maybe this makes me worse than nightly, but I'm not. I don't have it in me. I mean, that house is really big. Yeah. You yeah. could go also, that was, like that was maybe kind of part a, of it, right? Like you'd be like yeah. the Cato Kalen of <laughs> the Woodhouse estate. Ah. <laughs> um. Yeah, you I, could go several hours without running into right. No, because the thing he wants is, is is people in his life. He wants attention. He wants me to be in a conversation with him. It right. seems like they get along. I don't know. Yeah, couldn't be me. <laughs> <laughs> he seems great. He's funny. He does that bit where he makes fun of the priest. Love that bit. Happy to go Love to church bit. with him and sit next to him when he goes. 
innocence. Innocence. <laughs> innocence. Love it. Mwah. Happy to do yeah. that. We'll get brunch after. Yeah. Then I'm going to go back to my spot and like. <laughs> well, that's, play let's be real. that's very much what Knightley's offering. He's like, no, I'll totally move in with you. And my mansion across the street will be like my office. I guess that's true. I guess that's, that's true. the boys. That's the, that's that's the boys. Yeah, yeah, that's really. Yeah. God. That's the den. Tag the squad. Yeah. <laughs> Just just me and my imported marble statuary. Mm. God. Uh. Uh. Well, I think uh, that does it for Emma with a full stop. Um. Is that is that actually, I guess it's in the stylized. Yes. It's in the stylization. Okay. It is a statement. Period. Emma. Well, is it or is it a quote? Is it nightly saying Emma? Is that what it is? <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Is it people saying her name? Is it a particular Emma. person Emma. saying her name? Emma. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember the trailer, but maybe the trailer. Emma. Yeah, they... that would be. Yeah, if there was a trailer that we could yeah. check. But there's a trailer that the trailer like, had no Emma. idea what to do with this. Yeah, the trailer like leaned hard on like editing to try to make this like like it tried to make it feel like the movie does feel, which is pretty snappy yeah. and mm-hmm. light and fun. Yeah, but. Not in a way that trailers are good at communicating. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. I really, I really do like this version, but I think it, I think the thing that I love about it is that it's a beautiful production, right? Like mm. in terms of command of the text, I think there's a lot of the adaptations I probably prefer. But in terms of like a piece of cinema, I'm watching, this might be the best Austin adaptation I've ever seen. Wow. Wow. Strong words. Holy shit. Wow. Awesome. I really like yeah. it. The trailer does literally do the thing that that Natalie just suggested is where it's like Emma, Emma, Emma. Emma, Emma. Does it? Yeah, okay, 100%. that's what I thought. So, that's what I figured. So yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, Rob, theme. that is a really strong recommendation from someone who I think holds <sighs> holds their their cards close to close to his chest. Rob, normally you're someone who gives some time between. Uh, your consumption of something and your inevitable yeah, large except the problem is there is like but there's nothing I don't think there are adaptations that really as like cinematic productions mm. are really even operating at this level and that's kind of like in terms of the the fucking not, very, not terribly visually interesting May, oh the, the film the film uh, the film that's what I'm saying yeah, but that's that's kind of the, that's the thing though is that that's kind of what that has the most that's what that film has going for it the most. Where yeah. this, I still like hits hits the adaptation bits better than that mm-hmm. hit the adaptation bits, and is still like beautiful and well yep. done filmmaking. I can't. I don't know that I can. I think. I think you're right that it's beautiful filmmaking, but I care too much about the pacing and the character work that's missing here for me. I I wow, I put this in the wrong chat. One second. Uh <laughs> I definitely dropped that trailer into a chat with other people in it. Um <laughs> which is very funny. Uh I think that the that the 2009 version or whatever is so spent so much good time with Emma and uh and and Knightley that it feels absent here that besides the dance besides bits of the proposal like the fact that that proposal doesn't knock you on on your fucking ass means that the yeah. it didn't have the time to to for that element i think it does well i actually think it does really well are the things that 
are not the focal points maybe of other previous adaptations where, where other adaptations focused on Knightley and, and Emma's relationship and their bickering and the, the slow build towards flirtation and then the dance and then eventually the proposal, the explosion at, Bo- at Box Hill and the proposal, like all of that stuff is, is normally the focal point. And so the stuff with Harriet, the stuff with Miss Bates, the stuff with um, uh, Frank Churchill kind of becomes support supporting matter. And I think this maybe does a lot of those things best. I think that the stuff with Harriet mm-hmm. is specifically so sharp here. Um, mm-hmm. but it doesn't scratch my itch for playful couple, couple bantering and bickering with each but other that was, for so You're long. talking about the series. I'm talking about the series. And I know that that's a, I know that it gives it a distinct edge. I know. But like, listen, I'm stuck at home anyway. I'm going to watch, <laughs> I'm going to watch one or the other and give my <laughs> recommendation. I actually, what I actually mean is I think that watching that, that watching that series adaptation makes it made this land flatter, even if that comparison is apples to oranges, it just, it like meaningfully changes my experience. Cause I wanted more of the two. I wanted their chemistry to be hotter in the scenes yeah. that were not where it was like scalding hot. Like that sequence is fantastic. That dance is incredible, but the rest mm-hmm. of it, I wanted there to be better chemistry with them or more, more of, of them. And there just, yeah. it wasn't there. And I know that's like a, that's like a very superficial want because I think, you're right, Rob. That so much, this film does so much else really well, and I still like it a lot. To be 100 percent clear, no, I mean, here's the weird thing. Like in terms of like the thing I prefer, like is a good adaptation of the source material. I think the 2006 Johnny Lee Miller uh, Ramona Gray version is better, and I like it. Like I'll probably end up watching that one more. But in terms of like all the things that go into a production, like a thing being visually interesting, mm-hmm. uh, like making a making a cinematic experience out of the story. Just the sheer number of times I just wanted to take a take yeah. a still frame yeah. from this from mm-hmm. this movie and like rip it off the TV and hang it on my wall was yeah. incredible. Like there's just there's so much here. And I think that's more that's what I mean is like mm. what I mean by like it being the best production is kind of a narrow definition, right? Mm-hmm. Of like in terms of how is it produced, right? Not just the words on the page, but just what are the things put around it. I think this one probably does that better than most like most or maybe all of the others I've seen in terms of getting at the magic of Austin. I don't think it's on the level of that 2006 version. I don't think it cracks the, uh, you know, the firewall that is the, the uh, BBC pride and prejudice. Uh, (laughs) But I think it is, it does a really admirable job of, of having a really distinctive identity and style yeah. uh, for a story that we're really familiar with. I don't know that we have anything else to say. I think that might be, that's a good end for me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that will do it for this edition of Be Good and Rewatch It. Wait, um, did you all get Be Good and Rewatch It back? I'm so confused. No. It's, mm. it's oh. just going to go into the feed. Don't worry about it. Oh, okay. You can take that out then. No, leave it in. This is be good and rewatch it. <laughs> Natalie, you have to be like, wow, you should do be good and rewatch it more. That'd be fun. You gotta like sell sell the Everyone should, should You should yeah, ever- do be good and rewatch it more. That would be fun. Thank wow. <laughs> wow. Well now I Kato cut that part out. <laughs> Great. That will do it for this edition of Be Good and Rewatch It. Uh music is by I Q love Mello. this show. I love that it's always on. <laughs> Natalie, His work you can find at tumelomakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with everything we do at waypoint.com. So and follow us on Twitter at waypoint. 
As always, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice and let the world know about these five-star podcasts. Well, the one five-star podcast that we have with five-star runtimes. This is a five-star uh, runtime. This is a this five-star runtime. This is absolutely, we did oh, this, it. This is old school. Yeah. I miss this. Mm, I feel fucking great oh, I feel right great. Now. Yeah, I also feel better like than in weeks. I want to go get lunch so bad, but we can't do that. Oh, yeah, That's I'm not hungry. a thing we get to do after a podcast anymore. Uh, I'm gonna off go, to Max. Yeah, uh-huh. If only. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Austin, where can Just to be clear, you? Mex is a place near the rest near the vice offices. That was yeah, not Rob's building. That's right. Climb into your Mex, everybody. Let's go. <laughs> let's, hey, want to get a bite on top of the gantry? Yeah, let's go. That'd be great, honestly. Austin underscore Walker. You already know what it is. Natalie. Uh, at Natalie Watson. And you can Google Google uh, Kata Waypoint Twitter. Uh, <laughs> what? His account. Uh, we'll be back next next week it's with Waypoint Radio. We'll be digging into the remastered Final Fantasy VII. You can catch it all on Waypoint Radio and on Be Good and Rewatch It. I think we might upload it to this feed. Who knows? Until then, let us refrain from making any more matches. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Kata, this this <laughs> meme that you posted is good. That's all. This Full Metal Alchemist meme is brutal. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm mad at you. I mean, the t- the times are in, man. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, great pod. Great okay. pod. Oh, thanks for coming on. Right. That was so much fun. Thanks for having me, y'all. That is Scotty. Three hour Boston podcast. Three and a half. Mm-hmm. Three and a half. They don't make them uh, like this anymore. This is this is the shit I've craved. <laughs> <laughs> This is what the people want. Yeah. This is what they want. They've told me they repeatedly. Want. Listen, they should speak with their clicks. <laughs> send this one out. Put this out there in the world. Yeah. I hear podcast listens are down right now, but make this one be the exception to the rule. <laughs> Not ours, just generally just, yeah. speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a 20% dip or some shit? God yep. damn. I wonder, but that, like, definitely hitting the true crime podcast from what I hear. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> pivot point for who she is and leads us into the final act um mina uh sorry for the sirens sorry. the the hard-working no, my, ambulance drivers apparently my dog other is also trying to eat the edge Emma. of a rug oh no mina <laughs> so, stop doing hold on. that I, I have to give her a, a bone but y'all keep discussing this okay okay i'll be right back actually BRB. yeah i gotta i actually gotta use the restroom i'll be right back a lot of people are i'm gonna, gonna my refill door my dash, water yeah. also <laughs> be right back All right, i'm gonna get a drink Jesus, Lord. Hello. Hey. Checking these bell prices, or these turn-up prices. Let's see. Gotta see if the if the chart is still going down. I'm also watching this clueless scene. Yeah, hang on, can you link it, link it to me? Yeah. Uh, that scene sucks. It's, yeah, it's not, it's not good. 
Bob, there's the apology isn't even on screen. It's off camera. Yeah. What? Apologies in films do not count if they're off screen. <laughs> they're off screen. They don't count. That's right. Like, you gotta see... That, char- that character does not eat shit. Yeah. They really Doesn't... just needed to get this bit in where she's a bad driver because she's distracted. <sighs> Hello. Hi. We watched that, that scene. It's not a good scene. Which one? The clueless... Yeah, it's bad. Thing. It's bad. It's fucking bad. <laughs> it's bad, and then there's no follow-up, so... Nope. Nope. That's weird. She, like mentions Lucy offhand throughout the movie and but like there's no other mm-hmm. well, <laughs> is this is this any better well now we see you yeah, we see I just you. mean like no no it's, not at all it's not gonna just get better Kato there's a serious issue well, part of you me, have to go well, to the doctor part of me part of me part of me slightly wondered whether or not it was a connection issue between like east coast mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. one over Ricardo Contreras has become unstuck in time <laughs> I think I think ultimately then it's this computer being like like I think two OSs behind. Yeah. What wait, what do you mean? It's on ten point thirteen and I think Mac OS is on ten point fifteen. I think I think you're gonna be like it's running set Windows seven and I've been like, damn, that is commitment. On Vista, so No no, it's Mac Mac High Sierra. Um, and I I don't know what the fuck the name is of the most recent one, but I can't download. There's like a, a an app that Logitech made for this specific camera that I was trying to download, and it just doesn't work on this OS. So I think it might just be some weird shit with this specific computer. Mm-hmm. I will go away again. <laughs> and everything get everything paid. You got to put that in a savings account. Let it um, accrue interest. Yeah, bells are turnips are coming back. Turnips will be here in a minute. Mm-hmm. It's We're days it's out. almost Sunday. It's almost Sunday now. It's fucked up. I hate thinking about that. I haven't even checked my afternoons yet. My afternoon oh, yeah, crisis. You send me your uh, afternoons my shits. My shits. I'll send it to you after this. It doesn't fucking matter. They're gonna be trash. <laughs> I just <laughs> Austin, yeah, uh, Austin. I started low and I only got lower. <laughs> yeah. That's rough. Yeah, it is what it is. It is what it is. I, listen, listen. It's fine. We'll talk about it on Monday. Okay. <laughs> we made we'll money. We made yeah, money. This exactly. Week. We made yeah. money. I made we money made this week. <laughs> real, real bells. So, um, Rob, I have an announcement for you. An interesting new development in my life. I've ordered a sourdough starter. And I'm gonna <laughs> make. I'm gonna make bread for the first time in my life. Uh. Yes. Uh, no, they're sending me the yeast culture and a 16-page instruction booklet. <laughs> yeah. The website is called, hold on, I have it right here. Uh, recipes. Um, so, uh, sourdoughbreads.com. That seems safe. <laughs> yeah. I trust this, it. <laughs> this um, website Makes me trust them. Hold on, I'm sending this to all of you. I just inherently trust this website. Um, look at that. Oh yeah, that's some Web 1.0. Yeah, yeah that's I love HTML. This. That's tables and columns. My aunt, my aunt runs this. Oh, one. these people are real. <laughs> yeah, yeah this are is real legit. Guys. This is legit. Yeah. <laughs> I wish this was the. There's not a so. single animated element on this page. <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing is moving. It's Except- not even ironic. It's no. just. 
Click on reviews no, this is at very the bottom. Earnest. This, it's such an honest website. Is yeah. I just feel like I could trust Look, them. They with have anything. a box or at the bottom. There is a banner ad from Google. They have a box around it that says "ad from Google." <laughs> from Google, it says "ads by yeah. Google." Google. Yeah. Uh, you should click on reviews and just see this huge page of them just copying and pasting things people have sent them presumably it's there's it's a giant it's a giant oh my god the scroll bar is so tiny now (laughs) (laughs) faqs is like weird chat chat logs it's very good the the whole instruction booklet is like if you think you're fucking up call me just call me and i will fix it you'll get straight through to linda Linda, yeah, Linda, Linda will, will pick up the phone. 100%. Linda will pick up the phone. Linda will pick up the phone and answer whatever questions you have about, Man, about bread, wood about design, change. and more. It says up top. Linda, Linda did like. <laughs> Linda didn't know the life she'd chosen when when she built <laughs> no, this page. Like no. that, it's about to change. Yeah. Please go to the contact us page. It says, if you need help, just email me and you'll get an answer. That's what I call free tech support. Oh Here's God. how. And oh, then she, she says, oh sorry to God. say, but because I've been bombarded with spam like you wouldn't believe, I had to do a little workaround so that my real email address isn't available to the web crawlers. So to get in touch, just replace the dot oh wrong oh, in the yes. email address below with dot com and you can email oh, me easily. Linda so at sourdoughbreads.wrong. So, Please so change good. wrong to com. It's so good. I trust oh. Linda. All right, you I gotta keep me posted and send pictures of how this comes together. Uh, I have a good feeling about this. Me too. Um, There's a guarantee. I'm tempted. Somebody, somebody sent me a message on Twitter that they were like, uh, "So a friend recently gave me like a big old chunk from a like fr- from a uh, mother that is like mm. 30 years old. Like this, oh, is a, wow. this is part of an active culture that's been kept going for the last 30 years." Um, and I'm kind of tempted by that. Uh, I've always heard stories. My partner's grandfather, uh, apparently like right after he was discharged from the army after Korea, as he passed through San Francisco, he got a starter culture from a bakery in San Francisco in 1953 or 54 or whatever. And for like the next 30, 40 years, he made bread off this one culture. Wow. Um, and I've stories that like the flavor was incredible. Of like course. It really does develop its own weird flavor and vibe. Uh, and so I'm kind of tempted to like have this rando send me this culture that's been kept going for 30 years. You should. Oh, yeah. Just to, just you to should. like yes. see, just to see what that experience is like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There is a Stuff I've Learned page here, <laughs> which is just currently six tips about bread and baking there's no through line there's no thesis there's no, no. like it's just like <laughs> it starts with pecans, pecans. yeah topped <laughs> or not into the melted butter uh called for in the recipe before putting them into the pecan pie yeah totally sure yep mm-hmm. hey, this tip about the dry buttermilk is legit like it's actually way better than doing the um take the milk and curdle it with a bit of acid really huh. the dry buttermilk stuff is better interesting Linda knows what's up. Never, ever throw out stale or leftover bread, especially your homemade. Cut into chunks and give it a whirl in the food processor. Label and toss it in the freezer, and you'll always have homemade breadcrumbs. So, so (laughs) much healthier and better tasting than the bought kind. Sometimes I add yummies or two to the bags, keeping them separate. Uh, What are yummies? Fresh or dried herbs, whatever flavors you like. Make an instant flavorful addition to whatever needs a few crumbs. Thrifty, too. 
Wow. Damn. Damn, Linda. I love Linda. Uh, shout out to Dante for sending this. Shout out. Was this the person who, is Linda the person who was giving out sourdough starters in San Francisco? Yeah. Did you, was it really? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, did you see that the other day? Wait, no. I almost sent it to Rob uh, because it made me think of Rob. And then I, I thought better of it because I thought like maybe it was, I actually, what I actually thought was like Rob would never just take a random starter from. But you know, now okay. I'm contemplating taking uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh So in, you know how you can like, you know, you go to like a telephone pole and then you like staple a, a paper and you go, oh, for guitar lessons. And, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> here it is. I found it instantly. Thank God for my, my Twitter search skills. Free sourdough starter. His name is Godric and he's a white flower starter and it's three Ziploc bags stapled to a telephone I, pole. Mm. I don't trust it. I don't oh, trust I, that. I trust it implicitly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh no. yeah, this is a this is a little too honest for yeah. me. I don't know. It, don't there's a it. threshold of transparency that the dot the what the dot com 1.0 accomplishes for me in a very right. trusting way, and this is like other end of that. Sure. No, this is, this is just mutual aid. Like it's only the facts on the internet <laughs> that makes it weird, right? But somebody realized, like, hey, my neighbor is hurting. My neighborhood is hurting. All right. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no yeast in this town. Yeah, yeastless. Uh, a bunch of us are being asked to cook and fend for ourselves the first time in our lives. Yeah. Uh, and so we're gonna here. I've made the starter. Meet, meet Godric. <laughs> meet Godric. I love here it. He is. Um, I've heard there's Godric. actually a yeast shortage right now. Oh yeah, that's why I'm like in this boat. <laughs> oh, I, I see. Couldn't get the uh, the active dry. Okay, wow, well, gotcha. good luck. Um, there's always sourdoughbreads.com in case they're still selling, according to what I've seen. So let us know how it goes. I will. Um, Rob, you also no need idea a, what I'm a doing. Bread update for sure. Pardon? We'll need a bread update from both of you. Yeah. Yeah. Once, once I commit to that step. And you should have. <laughs> yeah. So the, the 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 catch is so there's somebody like a 30 minute drive away that is also like, hey, I will just leave some starter like on my front porch. You can come grab sure. it. Uh, just let me know when you're coming by, which would be very fast and convenient. I could be making bread right away. Mm. But now like the today, vintage Rob. like that you could be making bread today. Today I know, but <laughs> but that bread that starter's not 30 years old. Mm. Oh, I see. I see. I see. I see. I this am is not the 30 really like like so you were a history major. Right. I feel like this is this is an intersection of your uh-huh. interests right here. Yeah, get the 30 year. The, get the 30 year. Get the 30 the, year. The flip side is I'm tempted by that. I'm also tempted by the idea of make my own, make it like start from scratch and this will be my covid starter and I will always remember like, oh yeah, let me tell you why I have a fucking starter dough now <laughs> that right. I live with. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I started this when we ran out of yeast during the start <laughs> of the second Great Depression uh, following the COVID pandemic. This is Rondrick. <laughs> Rondrick. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, uh, uh, this, this is my starter, General Strike. <laughs> General Strike? Um, I think you should just do both, IMO. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably just have two big yes. old tubs. Yeah. Yeah. And then at not? some point, like, throw them in together. Marry them. Yes. The hybrid. <laughs> yeah. Starter. Okay. I'm listening. What was uh, going on 30 years ago? Nothing good. <laughs> no, nothing good. 89? 
No. 90. Yeah, I mean, that's another 90. economic collapse thereabouts. Um, Pretty much. All right. We should do a podcast. Let's yeah, do a pod. Absolutely. We should clap. All right. I should go to that place. You should. Um, Goodbye, sourdough breads. Bookmark that, though. Yeah. Hello, time.is. <laughs> <Absolutely. is. laughs> All right. Shall we go on 23? Sounds good. Perfect. Sounds oh, good. Uh, that did sound um, good. Oh, clap. Good clap. So. All right. Natalie, I just noticed your hair is long, and that reminded me. It looks very good, so Thank do not you. be offended by the fact I'm not connected to my dog's hair. <laughs> oh, uh, my God. Because, so the thing is, We're not I haven't gotten a haircut in a while, and there's uh-huh. no tri- like, and there's no trimmers anywhere in this house except the dog trimmers that we haven't used on the dog yet. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! <laughs> and it's a well-known like trimmer brand name. Yeah. And I'm sitting here wondering like, what's so what's different the difference between about person dog hair and dog yeah. hair? Uh-huh. Yeah. What's yeah. so different? Come on, it's what's, hair. What's mean I got that I don't? I've got thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> She's got a little dew claw. I got thumbs. I deserve. I deserve that. We're trying all sorts of new things in the time of Rona. You know, we are. We absolutely are. Um, as a fellow dog owner, I would say maybe do a test patch. I don't know on me. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, on me. Like a leg. Work. Maybe don't like test arm. Mina and be like <laughs> that works for her. <laughs> Find a part of Mina's hair that most resembles yours yeah. and see what happens. I just want to make sure my microphone is chill because I'm peeking at really weird times. It might be the cable a bit or maybe yeah. some table bumps. It's just, yeah, it's just peeking at really random times and now it looks like I'm really quiet. Um, okay. <clears throat> I'm just going to sit farther away. Um, right. anyway, I, I would say that you should cut your hair with your dog's hair. I think so too. Trimmer. Wait, there it is. <laughs> yeah. I, I understood where steel we were Steel sharpened steel. Yeah. You know what I mean? I hair cuts hair. Say, right. They're making just knives out of hair. <laughs> yeah, you're tight. Just tightening my hair into a tiny little braid, tighter and tighter, yeah. and then, like securing Stop. it with a bit of Mina hair, <laughs> and like eventually Perfect. it'll fall off. Yeah. It's it the knife guy on YouTube, oh. but he's making it out of hair now. Oh my god, God, that guy rules. I haven't <laughs> watched his stuff in forever. I don't know if he still rules, but at the time, yeah, he, he could. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> 